What's up, gangsters? Let's talk about your reading habits. Look, let's be honest. If you're not reading AFV modeler and air modeler magazines, you're doing it wrong. For over 20 years, AFV and air modeler magazines have set the standard for modelers embracing their inner geek at the highest levels. So look, it would be downright rude for you to miss the landmark 100th issue of Air Modeler coming on sale this month. It's going to cover maximum levels of detailing, scratch building, weathering, and even dioramas. There's guaranteed to be inspiration for all aircraft modelers in this centenary issue. With Air Modeler's much-admired big and bold graphic presentation, high-quality production, and beautiful photography. It's available from select newsstands, hobby retailers, and even better, direct from www.afvmodeler.com. And that's modeler with two L's in case you're over here in the United States where we spell it correctly. You can even order single issues, back issues, and even subscribe with worldwide delivery direct to your door. Also brand new, while you're over there, check this out. They've got the newest book from David Doyle that's published by AFV Modeler, and it's the definitive guide to the U.S. self-propelled gun M107 and M110 family. It's profusely illustrated with around 250 photos, many of which are in color, and many have never been published before. It covers detailed close-ups and vehicles in the field, and it's the perfect companion to the new kit being released by AFV Club. And, in case you need some accessories while you're there, don't forget that AFV Modeler are also UK stockists of the stunning detail and track sets from T-Rex in 135th and 116th scale. They've also got new additions to the huge range of track options for the new Stug kits, new T-55 track options, and Leopard 2 tracks in 135th scale. These tracks, and, and keep in mind, these are 3D printed tracks, so they are very cool. They're gaining the reputation of being the easiest to use and best detailed tracks on the market. No, virtually no cleanup and fully workable, so much easier than some of those other options out there. AFV are also the go-to guys for 116th scale armor upgrades, and it's expanding on almost a weekly basis with lots of new goodies for the latest kits. See, there's just a ton of reasons to get over to www.afvmodeler.com. The show you are about to listen to contains swearing, quite a lot of swearing in fact. We get deep into ideas and concepts and conversations, and when we do, sometimes we swear. If there are young ears around, maybe listen at another time. Welcome everyone to the Sprue Cutters Union. I'm Chris Meddings and today with me I've got Will Patterson. What's up, what's up? And Tracy Hancock. Hello. Coming up later we have an amazing interview with Margot Krombecker. But first, let's have a little roundup. What have we all been up to? Tracy, what's been on your bench this week? I have, uh, I've gotten the itch to build rather than paint. So uh, we talked about how I'd gotten those uh, really awesome T-Rex resin tracks for the little Panzer One. So I pulled out my 
Panzer 1B Beppel's Wagon uh, Shelf Queen that's been sitting up there for, man, eight, nine years. I don't even know. And a little, little 3D printing clamps and such and a little bit of photo etch and uh, took some photos of it last night. So the build on that is finally finished. And if anybody's interested, you can find it in Panzer Rex 10, uh, the Pilsen airfield photos where that famous uh, Panzer IV with the 88 millimeter mounted on it that Mike Rinaldi did such a fantastic job of. This little bug is uh, the short-tracked Panzer 1B sitting in front of it. So, so that was fun. Uh, call me perverse, but I find that more interesting than the Panzer IV with an 88 behind it. <laughs> oh, I like them both. I mean, there's a lot of photos from that particular photo set that I'm like, oh. Is that the only Panzer IV they did that with, as far as we know? I think so. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'll put photos up on the album. Um, we always put photos up of the interviewee uh, when we do this, when we release the episode. But I'm going to put some photos up of, of our stuff as well this time. Yeah. So people can have a look at that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Always a good idea. Tracks were good, yeah? Yeah, I love them. I, I really have to. I have to stop myself from rolling this thing across the bench. Like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I've told <the> hounds. <laughs> I've got the funk. <laughs> I saw that our buddy David Parker's using some of those T Rex tracks on his yeah uh, large large scale uh, tank that he's working on. I can I I, I can. It's a it's a one sixteenth scale Panzer four. Panzer four. I, I I'm always I, I'm always hesitant to say what it is because even though I think I know, I feel certain I'm going to get it wrong. But yeah, Panzer four. But that thing obviously is beautiful. Uh, it's six years. I didn't realize he'd been working on it for yeah. so long. Wow, he works um, on a ton of stuff, doesn't he, for the magazine and stuff as well. So yeah, that's just amazing dedication. I mean, put it like this: when he started, it, he was scratching, and now he's on three D. Yeah, he's really going to town on that thing, though. But I mean, he seems to he seems to love those T Rex tracks, and yeah, between you and him, I'm not sure how much more of an endorsement you could get for those. Well, I don't put myself in the same caliber as him, so. Well, you know, good quality stuff. No. Yeah, you know, good shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you've used Frool, and you've used Freel, and you've used a uh, Master Club, and you've used other ones. And Spade Ace. Uh, if you say they're good, they're good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Spade Ace. Ugh. Although they're the only option I've seen for the uh, Type 92 Japanese light tank. I've got one, a pit road one. I was talking to Harvey Lowe about it. You saw it, didn't you? His, uh, yeah. his Type 92, very, very nice. And he used to kit tracks and said they were a bit short and a bit tight. And I don't really want to use them. Um, and he did say about Spade Ace, but I'm having trouble finding them. So if anyone out there's got any, <laughs> please do write in. I'll take them off your hands. Yeah, I bought them for the Kami yeah. that I did. So, And I, they're fine. The casting is not as sharp as the, the Master Club. In terms of white metal track, they're, they're really, really good. But, you know, let's not mince words. Harvey said those kit tracks were awful. So if if it's the difference between using something awful and something that is a, <laughs> quite a good step up and you know and looks good, it doesn't have to be perfect to be better. Yeah. Well, Harvey's fine working with nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies obscure kits of one seventy second Japanese bombers and interwar planes. If he says those tracks are awful, 
he's not lying. Yeah. He's not he's not being overly demanding, do you know what I mean? Well he tackled that uh what Alpha Flight uh one forty eight scale Italian bomber, the the Cant Z yeah. one double yeah, seven. Yeah. I mean he turned a pile of garbage into a beautiful model. So yeah, apparently that you can polish a turd. Yeah. <laughs> it just actually takes <laughs> talent that you and I don't have. Uh, and let's be honest, patience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he's an outstanding modeler, man. I love watching his his. Yeah, work. we have to get him on for sure. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Patterson? Well, mine is typically uneventful, but I am back in action with my little Ming Hornet, and I have been fully down the rabbit hole for the last uh, couple of weeks on weapons. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sure that some people are like, "Yeah, there you go, down the rabbit hole," and I. I have just decided that the rabbit hole is where I'm happy. Since I have freed myself from the tyranny of the calendar on that thing, it instantly became more fun. And part of the reason is because I was, I felt free to just, you know, explore. And that's when I'm, I'm learning the most and doing the most problem solving is when I go down the rabbit hole. And that's honestly, that's, that's what's most fulfilling for me. And that's certainly been the case here because I didn't know jack shit about modern uh, aircraft weaponry. Um, I barely even knew what JDAM stood for. I still can't even remember. Joint Defense something or other. Armament Massive. <laughs> giant Dam Airborne Missile, isn't it? <laughs> giant, giant. No, because it's a With J. Because it's a J. <laughs> yeah, we're, right. we're phonetic. <laughs> oh, so it's gigantic. Got it. So, so for you, because you're because you're a Brit, it's jolly darn aircraft munitions. <laughs> they don't say but darn. It, I had to think of something instantly to use with a D. Come on, cut me some that's slack. Jesus, damn, awfully massive. Yeah, oh, Jesus, that's go. awfully massive. Da- that's awfully massive. There we go. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm glad I, we so, cleared that up. So the problem is, here's what happens to me is is I, I, I really need the story to make sense. And so I, I started out with being unhappy that when I looked at reference photos, that even though the decal sheet that I got from Afterburner is really beautiful, it's printed by Cartograph, it's got great markings for my chosen unit, which is VFA-27, the Royal Maces. They have super cool artwork on the tails. And I just liked it, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. And I, and I got their I got their decal sheet, but they're decals that are uh, circa 2008. So mm-hmm. that's where it started. And this is what always happens is with the markings, because I started looking at reference photos, and I the one thing that I wanted to do was make a super filthy hornet, obviously, right? And I found this beautiful website. It's the unofficial VFA 27 website. And they've got 20 years of of photos on there. And so you can basically watch chronologically. And some of these photos are are like with the more modern ones are are like 7,000 pixel images. They're, They're incredible. And you can watch chronologically as these aircraft get progressively more and more roached. And so by the time you get to the 2019 photos, I feel like the bird is appropriately filthy and that's what I want to do. But the 2008 version of the aircraft that goes with the decals, 
not really so filthy. So in my mind, I have a disconnect, and this this is what happens. So I start thinking, okay, well, I I want to make one that's more current, right? So what do I do about the markings? Well, the first problem is that as of the decal sheet, they were on the Kitty Hawk, but now they apparently are on the Ronald Reagan. I mean, they're based out of Iwakuni, but now they're on the Ronald Reagan. So that's a problem right there. Then you've got the air crew names, the ground crew names, and all these other little things. So I'm looking into getting custom dry transfers made. I found a company that does it, you know, like the old Letraset stuff. Yeah. So I found a company, they do it. It's like 60 bucks for a sheet that I design and they produce the dry transfers. So that solves my marking problem so that my markings go with the level of totally filthy that I'm going to, that I'm building this thing. But then I started thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, I don't know the particulars and they may not even be on the Ronald Reagan as of today. I wonder where they're going to be in 10 years. <laughs> so then I start looking at, okay, what aircraft carriers are going to be in service in 10 years? And the Navy is now on the, on the uh, you know, they're building the Ford class aircraft carriers. The Gerald Ford was the first one. And then the Ronald Reagan, and then they, for some reason, they're not, they, they sk- they're skipping a president. And the third one is going to be the Doris Miller. Do you guys know who Doris Miller was? I know Doris Miller wasn't the president. Nope. 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 Did you guys watch the newer version of Pearl Harbor, the one with Ben Affleck and all that? Uh, regrettably. Yeah. Yes. I didn't retain anything uh, of historical value. Was there anything of historical value in that? <laughs> there was no historical value in it. Uh, there was. I thought Alec Baldwin actually did a pretty good Jimmy Doolittle. But do you remember Cuba Gooding's character? He was the yeah. cook. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. So he runs up on the deck of the Arizona and starts fighting back. That was Doris Miller. And he was the and he was the first African American of any any military branch to be awarded the Medal of Honor because of his actions that's a good that, one. Yeah, nice. that day. Yeah, and, that's a, and, good. A, and unfortunately, he did not survive the war. He was killed several years later. But the third carrier in the Ford-class series is going to be the Doris Miller. And it's allegedly going to be delivered in a couple of years from now. So I thought, okay, 2032, they could be on the Doris Miller, right? Who knows? You've got to and put I, space lasers on it, though, yeah. Right, right. So then we're getting to that, right? So then I'm like, okay, I like the, I like the story. I like the idea of using the Doris Miller, and I'm going to get markings made for that. And I can get my, you know, standard number 19 incorporated in there someplace. But then I started thinking about weapons. And I posted on SMCG a couple of things like, hey, guys, here's the loadout that I'm going to do. And I used some of the kit weapons. And guys like J.D. Bybee, to whom we owe our name, Sprue Cutters Union, and who has thankfully reappeared on Facebook. Um, he was, and you know, he works for the Air Force. He's a, he's a, uh, I believe he's a tech sergeant and he does weapons. And he was like, bro, no, those kit weapons are, are old as fuck. Nobody has used uh, GBU 27 in like 10 years. So then I started thinking, okay, well, what weapons are they going to be using 10 years from now? <laughs> and, so, GBU 28. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually more like the GBU 53B, which is going to be a super gnarly little laser guided bomblet thing that weighs 250 pounds and they can fly it right into the window of the bad guy's 
uh, technical and you know and then there's the current version of the of the gbu or of the jdam which is the gbu 54 which is laser guided 500 pound bomb and so i've spent the last four days designing my own gbu 54 in fusion 360 and 3d printing it and getting it to fit the resin uh gbu or sorry br57 bomb pallet so that you can put a tandem on the pylon it's yeah it this is what happens this is what happens this is why it takes me forever to finish a fucking model so anyway so you're gonna you're gonna end up with a model that nobody else would even consider building it's gonna be incredibly unique so don't apologize for going down the rabbit hole i mean i'm loving it yeah and that and that is the point. I I want everything. Uh, it's stupid, but I want every model I do to be unique. And yeah, this is this is what happens. But but the thing is, I, and I know that people probably laugh at you know me doing the what if and the or the or the or the could have been. This is going to be a could be. You know, I'm going future tense instead of past tense. But the truth is, I learn so much more when I do this because. It's back to that thing of wanting the story to make sense. And so if I'm not able to connect the dots, you know, I'm not happy until I do. And that means, you know, I have 500 reference photos for Hornets now. <laughs> but but that's what's, you know, that's what's fun for me. That's the madness. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, we all dive deep into our projects, don't we? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, I don't think there's much on our benches on our display cabinets or anything that we knew a lot about before we picked up the model you know i mean i think for me a, a lot of times a model is a sort of necessitates a deeper dive into the technical aspects of it and because you want to get it right you know so you can't always rely on kit manufacturers to put everything in the box correctly and and have you be able to to use that like we all want to do a little extra whether it's yeah. sharpening up detail or or going balls to the wall and you know designing your own loadout. Yeah, I mean that's part of what makes it fun for everybody. And everybody really is honestly producing a unique model even if they build it straight out of the box and paint it according to the color callout. It's still theirs. I mean, it still has their personal touch. But I you know, it's I, I like what uh, Lester said when we when we were interviewing him. You know, he doesn't necessarily consider himself an overall subject matter expert, but he goes deep on each project and learns as much mm-hmm. as he can about that particular thing. Yeah. So, okay, that's it. Now, now, Meddings, what about you? Oh, man, right. Well, I think, I can't remember whether I mentioned on the last show that I finished a zero, but that's finished, and that was great. Yeah, yeah. aren't we supposed to be, like, Ripping that thing to shreds. We haven't got time today. (laughs) We've got too much other stuff to do because we're also doing a mailbag later and we've got more uh, paint chemistry coming up. Isn't that how you avoided us talking about the one of I believe the next show is your show, Will. So, you know, it's up to you what you have on it. (laughs) Tracy, I see a pattern here. (laughs) To be fair, you're the only one who's produced a model that's been critiqued. I was about to say, you have not been... You know, had your feet held to the fire either, so yeah. Yeah, well, that's because Tracy hasn't finished anything. That's true. Yeah, it's not true. I got the <laughs> that little uh, Hetzer. I finished that. Yeah, how did, did we? Av- that? How did we avoid talking about that? Don't know. 
Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe we should do a special episode coming up soon where we critique each other's models. Yeah. Anyway, so, well, one thing you can critique when we do that is uh, I finally got the tracks on the little French tanky. The Shard D1 that people will remember me talking about endlessly for like 100 episodes last year and then not talking about for three months because I was doing other things. It got pushed to one side. I got some resin tracks cast for it. I did the master and got them cast and I finally got around to putting them on and I'm not 100% happy, but they're, you know, the third attempt and it cost me quite a lot of money every time to cast them. So fuck it, they're done now. But you're you're not you're uh, not you're, no 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 you're not going to escape without getting called out on the fact that this is also version 3.0 of all the wheels, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the wheels weren't quite wide enough to take the track between them, so I made some new ones again. But you know what's? Um, hang on a minute. Eight, twelve, twelve, twenty-four. What's forty-eight wheels between friends? <laughs> so. <laughs> piece of piss luckily the idlers the sprockets everything else fine because obviously the first thing i did when i designed the tracks when i scratched up the tracks was to make sure that they fit the space between the the um uh what they called the teeth you know the pins the space between the pins fit on the teeth of the sprocket because if it's slightly out, it won't fit, and then you're fucked. As we all know, sometimes you buy aftermarket tracks, and unless they come with their own idler, sometimes they don't quite fit, which is a bit of a pain in the ass. So, uh, not idler, sorry, sprocket. So I checked all that, they fit, and luckily I'd left the idlers uh, loose in the adjustment slot. So I could move them to make sure that the tracks met with no gap. Because if you glue your idler in place, and you go to put individual link tracks on, Quite often you end up with a half link length gap between your tracks. And you're like, how the fuck do I find, uh, hide this? It's like, oh, I've got skirts, so I can put it behind that. No, 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 no. Those, no. Well, there are skirts, but they don't cover the tracks. So I made sure I'd left them movable. And then I put, I glued a load of tracks on the idler, a load of tracks on the sprocket. And then I made runs and tested it and tested it and tested it until I got it where I wanted. So they're all glued in place now? Work. Yep. And you're going to paint them all as Super one? glue. Yep. It's not ideal, but it's, uh, you know, you have to make compromises with tank models and you have to decide how you're going to do it. If they were pinned, if I I did think about drilling them all and putting a pin in them so they were workable. And then I thought that was fucking insanity because it's like <laughs> 220 track links. I'm not doing that. So um, they, they haven't been pinned. So uh, I just had to glue them together and that'll do. Because the other thing is, I don't know what kind of voodoo happens, but you can put paint in it and you can do this and that with it. And before you know it, the tracks don't meet. And it's like, well, they did last time I tried them and now they don't. So <laughs> glue it together, paint it. So what do you have left to do on that? All the fun stuff now. I've got to do the exhaust, the aerial, which is this crazy thing with a big metal strip that goes up like twice the height of the tank virtually. Well, certainly twice the height of the turret. And then a wooden insulator bar that comes down the back. And that's that's the antenna for the radio. And it's the dumbest looking thing you've ever seen. It looks like some sort of crane on the back. And I need to do a trench skid. And I need to do all the rivets and little details. But I love doing that stuff. But I didn't want to put it on earlier. Because it's guaranteed while you're wrestling with tracks and wheels, you'll knock it off. Yeah. So I'll leave that off till later. I'll do it after I've done it. So there's that. Uh, and I reckon that will be finished in the next couple of weeks. Nice. 
ready for paint finished or are you saying you're getting... yeah ready for paint okay i am going to paint it yeah i am going to paint it because everyone said don't paint it but you don't really know if you've done the surface properly till you hit it with primer and if you're going to prime it you might as well paint it my favorite reason for priming yeah find all the fuck-ups yeah. there will be fuck-ups because on white plastic it's so hard to see little scratches and things uh, I got a couple of things in this week as well. I got the Copper State Models uh, Cordron G3, which is very, very nice. Ooh. And Wingsy have sent me another BF109. This is the E4, which is very nice. Uh, see, it's got a yellow nose. I've got something about a yellow nose. It's, you know, colourful and what have you. So uh, I'll build that. Uh, but I've got some really big news. Drum roll. Yeah. Next week. The design will be 100% finished on Perfect Pits. The new book from Inside the Armour featuring myself, uh, Jeroen Veen, Tom Annis, and some arsehole called Will Patterson. What the fuck, And it's all about how to get the best out of the cockpits in your aircraft. We're going to do a little A5 book, probably about 70 pages. Very cheap because they're cheap to print in that size. And it really is just supposed to be something fun you can look through on your bench while you're working on your cockpit. Because we all know the focal point of any aircraft build should be anyway, the cockpit. Because that's where all the detail is. Us tank builders, we get to put detail everywhere. But plane builders, they've only really got the cockpit. Other than that, it's fucking boring, isn't it? <laughs> so you might as well put some detail they in put there. all the detail in the wheel wells and then put it, you know, with the wheel Turn wells facing down. <laughs> 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 Seriously, though. It is an area that a lot of people could be doing more with. And uh, between the four of us, we've got Jeroen telling you how to improve it with painting. We've got Will telling you how to do 3D design, print your own parts, and you know uh, go the 3D route yourself. Not just buy it from someone else, but actually do it yourself. Then we've got Tom telling you how to buy it and use it, and uh, how to use aftermarket. And I do some scratch building drink. And uh, so it's four different approaches of how you can do the same thing uh, or you can mix and match obviously and and in different scales yeah from 172nd to 132 yeah I think it's going to be really cool I've been waiting for a long time to see this so I was stoked when you told me that yeah, you're I'm, getting that close I'm to done I'm ready to hit that pre-order button yeah which doesn't exist yet but will by the time this comes out <laughs> yeah yeah it be, should be available for pre-order by the time this comes out right well that's the round up Wait, wait, uh, wait, wait. Well, hold cool. on. Hold on. This is because I, I have a question for you. This is something mm. I've been wanting to ask you for, I think, two or three weeks now. And I keep forgetting because um, this really flew very much under the radar. You offhandedly made a comment one day, and I can't remember if it was in our in our backroom chat or if it was in one of the groups, that you have made the move to an Optivisor. Oh and... yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I put a photo and... on the, the uh, obligatory photo on Facebook with googly eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went full on cyborg with that shit. Does that thing have a like? Does that thing have the have have lasers and oh, it's got it's light. Got Damn, little, son! They have it's... tiny little robot arms that come out. <laughs> For some reason, the light angles. Why would you want light pointing in it anyway? Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't paint my models for me. But I'll be <laughs> yeah, I always said I wouldn't get one. Uh, yeah, but yeah. then I forgot I'd put one on my wish list and someone bought me. My my mother very kindly bought it for me for Christmas. And it's awesome. I like it. Yeah. It's good. I 
don't use it very much because it makes my it starts to make my forehead ache with wearing it for too long with mm-hmm. it being a bit heavy but i use it for painting figures uh i don't use it tend to use it for building but actually i've just had my first go as well at sculpting a figure and that needs some refinement and i think it will be perfect for getting in there with the picks and refining the detail and sharpening it up and stuff like that so i'll be using it for that as well well, that's awesome to hear because I knew that you were kind of anti-optimizer for whatever reason. And I, I you know, I maintain that that everybody's work gets better with magnification. And but I know that a lot of guys just don't like to use them because they feel like it fucks with their depth perception or you know, they got a little bitch forehead and it, you know, it hurts or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but but I but uh, I just was curious. Yeah, it gets in the I... way of the knob I've got on there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dickhead joke for the English. <laughs> I was just curious to see how you liked it and if you felt like it had had, had helped you with, you know, like if if it had changed your changed the way you work, you know, specifically like with scratch building. It is you... better, but only slightly better. Because the, the reason I never got one before is because I have very, very good short range eyesight. It's shit in the medium to long range. I couldn't see you if it were, you were a truck coming at me from 10 feet away. I'd be like, what's that breeze? But if it's right in front of me, I see it perfectly. I've got very good vision in close. Mm-hmm. And that's why I never used one. Yeah. But I was starting to get strain from working for a long time up close. Yeah. So it helps a bit with that. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I do too, even though I even though I have to wear reading glasses. Like I use a, a plus one or a plus two power reading glasses. Uh, but with that correction... You know, my my vision is is brilliant at that range, but I still can't magnify. I mean, you know, there's just still a certain level of of you know tiny brush bristles next to a tiny eyeball that you just can't see as good as you can when it's magnified. And yeah, so- but it's it's ninety nine percent in your hand. It's not your eye. It's your hand being able to do it. That's the the tricky part. It's being able to manipulate a brush that well. You don't think that starts with your eyeball, though? No, it starts with good brushes and fine mm. motor control. Yeah, but it also, mm-hmm. you know, hand-eye coordination is a real thing. So if it's you're, a, yeah, if you use something that magnifies your work, then suddenly your hand has to coordinate with the magnified image. Right. So you're able to to translate those really small movements better. Is that's my thought. I you know maybe maybe it's bullshit, but but that's my theory. I'm interested to see what it will do to my work on one seven hundred ships. Yeah, I think that could because that's my other thing. My my pet theory is, and I've never stopped wanking on about it. Sorry, is that if you learn to work in really small scales, your sense of scale adjusts and you can work smaller. If you work in 135th and you try 1700, everything seems way too small. But do it for a while, and it suddenly somehow isn't so small anymore. Now, I will caution you that if you're like me, that there's a there's a there's another side to that blade of having all that magnification, mm-hmm. and that is now all the flaws are like, yo, hey. I need to be fixed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you put your macro photo up and go, oh, it's shit after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can see it in real time. Yeah, and <laughs> so I do. I end up chasing, I end up chasing nits uh, way more, uh, you know, because I'm like, I, I'm like, oh shit, there's a little bit of flurm in my paint. Where's the sandpaper? 
you know, and if you fix it and you and move on, that's great. But then there's that thing where you fuck something up in the process of fixing something. And what, what, what's the German word for schlimmer besserunging? So if you schlimmer besserung the shit out of your model, yeah, it, you know, that's a, that's a, that's an issue too. So, yeah. Anyway, I was just curious because I, I, I knew that you were not all about the uh, Optivizer and that you had made a big change. So, All right, so we're going to have a little break there because we've been going uh, for about half an hour. When we come back, we will talk about uh, a bit more paint chemistry, which has been very popular with some listeners. And this week we will be doing enamels. Tom Annis is a man on a mission. Like all of us, he wanted the best from his models, and when he looked into his cockpits and found they were lacking definition, he fixed it. Not content with blobby dials, switches, and knobs, Tom knew we all deserved better, so he started designing the sharpest and best printed aircraft details you will find today, and making them available to the masses. But he didn't stop there. He found a way to upgrade hoses and lines with the highest quality braided materials. And he designed an extensive range of decals covering everything from instruments to placards to superb metallic lines and more. Now Anna's offers not only superb physical details, but outstanding digital files you can print at home. Tom Anna's didn't settle for mediocre detail, and neither should you. Go to Anna's.io today, that's A-N-Y-Z zio to start your journey into hyper detail with Tom's superb range of easy to use and outstanding products. You'd be a fool not to. So welcome back. Will, what can you tell us about enamels? Let's just get right to it. Yeah, well, enamels are are their own sort of thing. Um, maybe the you know that's that's probably like the oldest form of model paint that any of us might be used to. Um, I know that in my first go round with model making back in the early '80s, enamel was it really. You know, I I actually thought those little tins of of Humbrol enamel were super cool, and uh, and that's that's all we that's all we knew. I, in fact, I remember when Floquil came out with some water-based stuff, and I tried using it and didn't know, you know, what I was doing, and it just fell right off of the model. So enamels are OG, and I think that most of us have moved away from them uh, for some obvious reasons, or at least some, some, you know, popularly stated reasons. You know, one being that enamels have a tendency to take a long time to cure. Um, you know, I think we've all experienced that phenomenon where you think your enamel paint was dry and you pick your model up and find that you've left fingerprint on it. And that's a problem with enamels. Um, and, and the reason that they do take a, a longer time to cure is because um, they are, in, in, in their basic mechanism, they are a lot like acrylics. They, they have both a drying and a curing mechanism. Um, you know, once the carrier evaporates from an enamel paint, you're left with just the resin. And once it's exposed to oxygen, 
it undergoes that cross-linking thing that we've talked about, and it cures, hopefully, in a reasonably short amount of time, uh, into a hard plastic shell. And, you know, it's also a lot like oils in that respect. And there is, in fact, a similarity, because as far as I know, pretty much all the enamels that are that, that we have access to, and, you know, we're talking about not just enamel paints, but things like Tamiya Panoline Wash, that's an enamel material. Um, you know, pretty much all of the weathering products that we get, uh, you know, from MIG, Ammo, Panoline Washes, Earth Effects, Wet Effects, all that stuff is all uh, an enamel material. Uh, so even some of the metallics like the, uh, like the uh, um, AK Extreme Metals, because they're so extreme, yeah. bro. <laughs> They are they are enamels. I thought it should be a. Yeah, it's extreme. <laughs> they're they're enamels. Um, all clad has a line of military colors that are enamels. I think all of the all clad uh, candy colors are are enamels. Um, their clear K L E A R coats are enamels. Uh, their gloss black base is an enamel, which is people say, well, wait, I thought they were lacquers because it's the name is, you know, it says lacquer on the bottle. People get confused because all clad to lacquer is the brand name. And let's uh, not get into that again, that they're right. based enamels or whatever it was, whatever it was. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. But anyway, yeah, that, that, so, so those are the enamels that we get to deal with. And um, they, but but they you know they essentially do have that curing mechanism. But instead of being an emulsion like an acrylic is, the resin in an enamel is actually dissolved by the carrier, and that resin is what's called an alkyd, uh, a l k y d, which mm. is basically a synthetic drying oil. You know when we talked about oil paints, we talked about drying oils and how they work: linseed oil, walnut oil, that type of thing. And you can, in fact, buy alkyd oils in a tube. Windsor Newton has a whole line of alkyd oils. And it's the same stuff, basically, in the resin. And the, and the nice thing about those alkyd oils, this is an aside, is that they dry a lot faster. Um, in fact, that's how Windsor Newton markets those, is as fast-drying oils. But it's the same basic resin that's in your Tamiya Panoline wash or your ammo wet effect. It's an alkyd resin. And it's nice because the carrier is mineral spirits. And that's really how you can tell. Like if you're not sure how, you know, whether it's an enamel, just smell. And if it smells like diesel, for sure. It's an, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, that's the mineral spirits. It's an enamel. Oh. Um, <laughs> And there are there are some weird varieties of enamels, but again, it comes down to additives. Like people say, oh, well, the AK Extreme Metals are, it says on the bottle that it's an enamel, but it doesn't really act like an enamel. And it's like all this stuff. It just depends on, on what they modify it with. You know, like they may put some 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 xylene or some acetone or something in there with it to make it dry faster. You, you just never know. But the bottom line is that, you know, if it'll rub off with mineral spirits, it's an enamel. That's, that's the bottom line. And that's, that's one of the things that makes enamels so wonderful for us as weathering products. Because under normal circumstances, mineral spirits 
should not have any chemical effect on a fully cured acrylic paint surface, right? So if you've painted your tank with acrylics and you want to do a, a panel line wash, you can run Tamiya panel line wash all over it and you clean up the excess with 100% mineral spirits and you should have no problem. You know, you should be able to wipe the excess stuff off without fucking up the paint. Uh, if you, you know, put some, some earth effects or some something like that on there, decide you don't like it, just like oil paints, you should be able to erase that with, with mineral spirits. And you can thin them with mineral spirits as well, right? You don't need to use enamel thinners. You don't. You don't have... Okay, and I'm so glad you said that because here's the thing. And, and I see this all the time. In fact, I saw it this, this morning on, on a Facebook group. Some guy was like, hey, I used whatever, Tamiya Panoline wash, and it fucked up my paint. And immediately, if you know paint chemistry, you know that that's not true. There's nothing in Tamiya Panoline wash that is inherently going to fuck up his acrylic paint. But he removed the excess with Tamiya enamel thinner. Or maybe it was Testers. Testers, Tamiya, and Humbrol, all three, I believe, make one that's called specifically Enamel Thinner. And, mm. you know, if you're just shopping at the hobby store and you see that and you're like, oh, I'm going to get some enamel weathering products, I need this enamel thinner, or whatever, that's totally reasonable, but it's a trap. Because the reason that it's called Enamel Thinner is because they can't call it mineral spirits because they put additives in it they put modifiers in it and specifically like with tamia and testers what they put in there is xylene to make it dry faster but xylene is super hot xylene in fact is a common component of some lacquer thinners and it's the xylene that fucked that guy up because you know he started rubbing with the q-tip soaked in whatever kind of enamel thinners it was and sure enough, it started fucking up his paint because of the xylene in there. So the rule is just don't ever use. Yep, there you go. So the rule is uh, he, for the, for people who can't see, Chris just pulled a bottle of Humbrol enamel thinners off the shelf. So the rule is. It's a nearly full bottle. And the reason is I tried it and it was hotter than Satan's piss. Mm -hmm. It was yep. really hot. Yep. It, it, and it fucked up your day, didn't it? You found out the hard way, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, and also it stinks to high heaven. Yeah. It really and does. Tracy has just pulled out a <laughs> bottle of Tester's Enamel Thinner. Does it have the list of ingredients on it, Tracy? They're usually pretty good about that. But anyway, while he's look while he's looking at that, the rule is for if you just and if you just stick to this rule, you'll be fine. Never use anything that doesn't say a hundred percent mineral spirits on the container. Because if it does, that means it doesn't have a significant amount of modifiers in it. And, and you know, just from the straight-up hardware store. Um, and if you don't like the smell of diesel, get yourself some odorless mineral spirits from the art store, like Mona Lisa or Windsor Newton Sands Odor, because that's just mineral spirits. And Turpinoid's another one. Turpinoid is Weber's. Yep, there you go. Chris got that to you guys. You guys might be my able personal to... favorite. Winter Newton Sansoda. Yep, yeah. exactly. And yep, Turpinoid. So Turpinoid is just <laughs> Weber's brand name for odorless mineral spirits, and it's basically the same as Sansoda. 
And all they've done is, is refine it one more step from regular mineral spirits to take out the sulfur compounds that make it smell like diesel. But it also ends up being a little less hot. Like, don't you guys find a little less hot than hardware store mineral spirits? Yeah, I find that to be a benefit. It can be. It, like, it annoys me. It's if hot I'm, enough, if, put it like that. Right. <laughs> like, it annoys me if I'm if I'm trying to scrub excess Tamiya panel line wash off of a flat paint surface. I, I don't want to fuck around. And so I prefer the hardware store stuff because it's just slightly hotter enough to not irritate me. But the other stuff works fine, too. Um, but they also have slightly different, like, capillary flow characteristics mm. you know like when you're working with oils you'll see a little bit of difference there but but the bottom line is it's a hundred percent mineral spirits and if you just stick to that you'll always be fine the other reason i like them is uh, enamels is you for weathering you can mm. mix them with oils they play well together very well absolutely absolutely and by doing that i find i can get it to dry slightly faster than pure oils mm. Yep, and you can use you can also use lighter fluid. That's another solvent that works really well. The other cool thing about enamels, again, because because as I was saying about you know removing excess panel line wash or weathering products, the same thing applies to enamel paints, as long as you catch them before they're fully cured. And so I keep I keep a basic set of enamel paint around in red, green aluminum, bronze, gold, flat black, white, all of the colors of things like cockpit details. Because, you know, when you're in one of those situations where you're painting little tiny details and it's a real high penalty thing where if you color outside the lines, you know, you need, <laughs> you right, which I do frequently. Just get better you, at painting, you prick. I though I would love to get better at painting. Paint, painting. Um, <laughs> I can't, even, I can't even talk, much less paint. But you, you've always got that. You've always got the escape clause. If you're using mineral spirits, yeah. Yeah. right, you can always get a little tiny brush that you dip in some mineral spirits, and you've got a magic eraser, which you cannot do easily with acrylics. And, and so it's a good thing to just have around uh, for, those, for those situations. And... Um, so, you know, I think enamels are, people will say, oh, there's no, you know, who needs enamels? Well, I think that's wrong. I think there's plenty of good reasons to use enamels. And some people still like to even use them for color coats. Um, they spray beautifully. Um, and, and, you know, you've got uh, uh, what's uh, like, you know, you've got a few companies that are still producing them. And they're very popular. Yeah, bro. Sovereign Hobbies in the UK mm -hmm. picked up the white ensign ship colors. But actually, since then, they've redone pretty much most of them i think and that's jonathan Lowe, and they've right that's his company right no it's it's um jamie duff oh jamie duff my bad my bad anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so but, but but and uh yeah he's but he's also looked at the thinners and everything else to improve a lot of the problems you're talking right. about mm -hmm. about um to make sure that when things dry they dry properly matte that mm -hmm. they dry relatively quickly they don't take forever to dry and it, a lot of it comes down to the quality of the paint and the quality of the thinners and yeah, I mean, like us, he's anal about the quality. Yeah, I mean, look, enamels are honestly they're they're really versatile. Um, like even the car mm. the car modeling guys, a lot of those guys want to do a single color coat 
that does not require a clear coat on top of it, which means that you need a gloss. And enamels do gloss pretty well, much better than acrylics. One of the better things about the slower drying time is it, it levels better, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah, it's kind of self-leveling. And, but a lot of those guys, a lot of the serious car modelers are thinning their enamels for the airbrush with lacquer thinner. You know, okay, that works, does it? It absolutely works because, look, lacquer thinner, and, and this will this will kind of bridge us to next time or whenever we decide to talk about lacquers. Lacquer thinner is just a super hot solvent that will dissolve a lot of shit. And, and one of the things that will dissolve quite well is alkyd resins. And that's why it works with uh, with most enamels. All right, so we're done on enamels. Ah, I think that's that's plenty. Uh, another little break there. When we come back, we're gonna listen. It's been a long time since we did listen mail, so let's do some letters. Hey guys, Chris here with some special news from inside the armor. We've got a new book, and better than that, Will's in it. So what is it? The new book is called Perfect Pits, and it's a book all about how to get the most from your scale cockpits. From 172nd to 148 to 132nd, we look at five different projects from four different modelers, including myself, Will, Jeroen Veen, and Tom Annis, telling you how to get the most out of your scale aircraft cockpits, from scratch building, to aftermarket, to painting, to 3D design. The book is available for pre-order now at www.com insidethearmor.com or ask your favourite hobby bookstore to stock the book for you. At 72 pages and A5 it's perfect for propping up on the bench to get the most out of it when you're working on your own cockpits. So don't forget pre-order Perfect Pits today. Yeah, let's do some letters. The first letter we've got is from Stefan Bridal, who posts uh, as uh, Idle Bridal on on Twitter and has the Warhammer adjacent uh, blog. Go look it up. It's very good. Dear Union Bosses, first off, thanks for all your efforts. I'm really enjoying the podcast and the episode length is really helping me to stretch out my Audible subscription, which is great. I should also mention I joined the SMCG before you guys started the podcast and quit as the atmosphere of the group didn't seem right for me. However, after listening to the first couple of shows, I rejoined and have really benefited from the feedback. Go SMCG. I was wondering if you could touch on one of the fundamentals that I never seem to get right, paintbrushes. I'm wondering if you could drop some art school slash engineering knowledge to help with the following. Basic type synthetic versus sable and so on are there any particular jobs which some are better at than others uh brush care might always end up looking like a badger's backside however well i look after them do you have any tips to keep the detail brushes nice and pointy recommendations are there any brands you recommend would avoid particularly for people on a budget if you were starting out again what would be in your starter pack in terms of brushes shapes etc Thanks in advance. I'll buy Will a beer if he can find a way to crowbar three printing into his response. Term and conditions apply. So thank you for that, Stefan. I'm going to throw that one over to art school genius Tracy first. Well, I'm no genius, uh, but <laughs> bristle types, synthetic versus sable and so on. Um, uh, paintbrushes are 
they make so many different types because there's so many different applications for them. Um, a synthetic number two uh, versus a sable number two is it's really about I don't know the, the lifespan of it, uh, the quality of it. The synthetic is just not going to be quite as nice. Uh, sable, I like having uh, some sables. Um, Kalinsky was the brand that I used to buy. Um, I know Mignola's got, or not Mignola. Wait, wait, mic. wait, wait, stop. I have to interject a point of clarity here because you just said Kalinsky was the brand and that's going to confuse some people because it's not a brand. It's a type of hair, right? The Kalinsky sable. That's a particular. Right. Well, it's a type of sable, yeah. Yeah, it's a particular breed of animal or whatever the fuck it is. Anyway, sorry. Well, sab- sable's an animal. Right. The sable is yeah. the is the animal, but the Kalinsky is the particular breed of sable. So, yeah, sorry. You know me and nomenclature. Yep, yep, yep. So I don't I don't even remember what the actual brand um, that I used to buy was. But you can find good quality sable brushes. I like having a number two, a number zero, and maybe a double zero on hands. Um, and they're, they're useful for fine painting because the, they do hold their point well. Um, they hold a nice amount of paint. Uh, and when they get kind of ragged out, then they become useful for other applications. You know, I mean, when they get ragged out, I'll use them for hairspray chipping and things like that. Um, but for hairspray chipping, it's also nice to have like a, like a little small flat brush. Synthetic is fine for that uh, because you're really just going to rag that brush out doing your hairspray chipping. Having a nice little um, sort of a, a short stubby bristle brush is nice for hairspray chipping because the bristle is a little more aggressive and that, that can certainly be a good tool to help get your chipping started. Um, and the, like a flat synthetic or a flat little stubby bristle is also going to be good for applying your oil paint and if you're doing oil paint rendering or something with the, the sort of the tamping and stippling motion because those brushes are already sort of blunt um, you're not going to wreck them too much um, as opposed to like a, a number two sable you don't want to use that for your stippling and stamping and, and whatnot because you're you're really going to wreck the shape of the brush. Uh, brush care, soap and water. Um, when I'm finished with my brushes, even the shitty ones, I go to the bathroom, I squirt a little bit of liquid soap in the palm of my hand, about, you know, just a, a real small dollop, and work the bristles on my hands, rinse it off, and do the same thing again, and then... Question. Yeah. Do you feel like people need to go out and buy, like, the fancy Masterson brush soap? Or can nope. they just use their old, you know, dish plain old? What is it? Washing up liquid? You can use washing up Don't liquid. Use that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't use that on a sable because it's got degreasing stuff in it and it will it will kill the bristles. But hand soap's fine. Yeah, just your regular hand soap. And again, you're just using a really small amount and you're just cleaning it. You're getting all the, the paint that's kind of residual paint that's up, in, up near the ferrule. You're getting that out. Again, rinse it off real good give it a shake and the most basic thing is you obviously don't store your brushes point down 
you, you put them somewhere. <laughs> well, I mean, it bears saying, right? You, you want to store those brushes point up. And what I'll normally do with my nicer sable brushes after I'm finished washing them and everything, I'll just put them in my mouth and and reshape the point because your saliva has got a little bit of stickiness in it. Just put that brush in your mouth and pull it out and you should have a nice fine point. A lot of good brushes come with the little plastic guards, uh, little plastic tubing. Um, and if you can, kind of keep track of those and, and put those back on your brush. And if you're on a budget, I mean, you can, for weathering and and doing groundwork and stuff like that, I've got packs of just super cheap brushes off of Amazon. And I, I do still try to take care of them, but I know going in, they're not going to last very, you know, as long as a really good brush. But there's some tasks you really don't need a very good brush for. There's only really a few tasks that you want to keep a nice brush for. You want to keep it for your detail painting, your precision application of oil paints, your figure painting, your faces. Other than that, cheap brushes, are they serve a purpose too. Absolutely. Will, anything to add to that? Oh, you know, I was sitting here thinking while he was talking, we could almost dedicate an entire episode just to talking about brushes. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, brushes, like all tools, are very personal. But brushes are in a way, kind of even more so because not only does it sort of depend on how you like to interact with, with, with your tool, <laughs> but, yeah. but the uh, way that, that your tool interacts with the material you're using, right? I mean, because acrylics behave differently in a brush than oils do, and it depends on how much thinner you use. And, you know, so it really is a very personal thing. And I think the number one thing I would say is that that you got to experiment. Like you got to find your you got to find the one that really does work for the way that you want to use it. Um, like for example, um, when it comes to detail painting, figure painting, people often talk about the Windsor Newton Series Seven as being kind of the pinnacle. And yeah, I mean they're expensive. You know, you're going to pay. I mean anywhere between ten and twenty bucks, I think, for for most of them. Um, I don't mind that. And I still, I still just abuse the shit out of my brushes. I don't, you know, I treat them as a disposable thing. I take care of them, but I buy them to use them. And if that means that I'm going to use an expensive brush for something that seems kind of barbaric, then so be it. Cause all I care about is the results and I could get a new brush, but like with the Windsor Newton series seven, they have two. A lot of people don't realize this. They have the regular series seven and they have the Series 7 miniature. And the difference is that the miniature has a shorter body, the belly, whatever you want to call it, that shit that sticks out of the ferrule, which is that metal part at the bottom of the handle. And a lot of people also don't realize, and I've heard maybe you, if maybe you guys can confirm this, the ferrule is what determines the brush size number, right? It's not the size of the tip. You guys are not. I, I don't know. I know it's not the size of the tip. I'd say it's more the size of the belly than the ferrule. Well, the Maybe ferrule so. is going to detect the size of the belly, but it's the belly, not the tip. Yeah, because the the thing is, you'll notice if you compare across brands, you'll see that like a a, a a number zero brush of one brand looks like a completely different size from a number zero brush of the, the other brand. And the reason is because they have the same size ferrule, but the bellies are different. So... 
they seem like different different brushes. But anyway, the uh, the difference between the Series Seven miniature and the regular ones, the miniature has a shorter point, has a shorter belly, and so it's a little springier. It behaves differently, you know, when you're using it. It doesn't hold as much paint. So, like a guys who use acrylics, for example. I've always heard that this that the tactic for acrylics is that you want to get it relatively thin and you want it to fill the belly and bleed out of the tip, which you don't necessarily want when you're working with oils, for example. You just really, it's just, you, you want to work with just the tip when you're using oils. So it's a different, you know, you have a different goal. And <laughs> it's a good thing you guys kidding, can't baby. see what's happening in Chris's uh, Chris's <laughs> space right now. But but like when it's I use, uh, yeah, it's a good thing because then we'd know you're not wearing pants, and that'd just be a bad be a bad thing. Then all we could see the belly and the tip. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. So <laughs> I think at that point we need to we need to just do a yeah. little bit of paintbrush nomenclature. Uh, so looking at your paintbrush, the handle is the fucking handle, right? The, mm-hmm. I think everyone knows that. The metal sleeve that joins the handle to the bristles of the brush is the ferrule. Mm-hmm. Then where the brush curves into the ferrule, that's called the heel. The wider part and the main body of the brush is the belly. Mm-hmm. And then the tip is the tip, or sometimes Got called it. the toe. Fuck knows mm-hmm. why, because the last thing you want to do is stand on it. So... The action on the brush happens with the tip. The belly, think of it like a um, fountain pen. The belly is the reservoir. That's where your paint is held. So like you were saying, like Will was saying, if you're painting details, you want a bit of a belly on your brush because otherwise, particularly with acrylics, it's going to dry on the tip the whole time. If you've got a short belly, the paint's going to keep drying on your brush. Same as if you're working, if you're spraying water-based acrylics and it keeps drying on the fucking tip. Same thing mm-hmm. as that. So having a little bit of liquid in the belly is uh, keeping the tip of your brush wet and keeping it workable. However, you don't want to get paint in the heel up by the ferrule because that's it's really hard to get out. It clogs up and that's when your brush starts to spread because there's paint jammed up in there in the heel. So if you can avoid it, and it's not always avoidable, but if you can avoid it, don't get paint in the heel up by the ferrule. I've heard that the trick to that is to dip your brush in thinner first, but I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that true? Also, just be careful how deep you dip your tip. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Make sure to clean it afterwards, you know? I mean, that's part of what you're doing with the yeah, soap and absolutely. water. absolutely. Is, is getting that, uh, you know, that old paint out. Like Tracy, I always wash my brushes, and I always use soap. Uh, I use Rosemary's. It's great, but I never tried hand soap. And from what I've heard, hand soap, also I've heard hair conditioner for Sable is really good because they're basically hairs and it relaxes mm-hmm. the hair and helps it keep a point. Shampoo I buy, with conditioner. Uh, yeah. yeah. I buy Winsor & Newton Series 7. They are expensive, but they last 10 times longer than shit brushes if you look after them. So economy-wise, they're actually, I think, better value than poor brushes. But there is no point using a Series 7 to mix paint. There's no point using it to slap on um, particularly uh, lacquer thinner and things like that because it will fuck the hair up on them and they'll die quickly. And besides, like Tracy said, you can do that with a cheap nylon synthetic brush. So I also buy cheap shit nylon brushes for 
mixing my paint for the airbrush, for mixing paint for figure painting, for applying uh, like a coat of um, Sansoda to the model before I put oils on or anything like that. I use cheap shit synthetic brushes for weathering and things like that. I, I generally use the cheap ones. I only use the, the good ones for uh, fine detail work and for figure painting and stuff like that. So in summary, <laughs> a couple of, from me, a couple of good Winds uh, of Newton Series 7 will, will do you great service for fine work. And other than that, just buy whatever you like. It doesn't really matter too much. I, I just want to add two quick things. One is is we're talking about little bitty brushes for detail painting. But Tracy mentioned other uses too. And so look at brush shapes because there's a bunch of them out there. Like, yeah. you know, you might want to get yourself some Bilberts, which are a great shape. It's kind of a combination yeah. of a flat and a, and a rounded thing that works great for oil paint rendering there's uh there's the uh the wisp which is looks kind of like a uh like it's got fingers and that's kind of useful for streaks um there's the deerfoot stippler which is a super stiff thing that looks like a hoof and it can be useful for oil paint rendering stuff for scrubbing you know like if you get that dust in your wing root from airbrushing, you can use something like a Deerfoot stippler to just basically scrub it off. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of things. And so I would, again, just encourage people to try out different things. Uh, but going back to storage, you know, Tracy was talking about storing them uh, with the point up, <laughs> which seems obvious. But there's a group of people out there who maintain that you should always store them point down after you wash them. So that whatever liquid is left in the heel will drain out. That is true, but but what I'm saying is I, I'm telling people not to, you know, mo- a lot of people put them in a coffee cup on their bench. Yeah. You don't want to put them That's point me. down in a coffee don't, cup because right, it's going to exactly. bend the brush. Don't leave them resting on the on the bristles. <laughs> See, but, right? Seems seems obvious, right? Right. But yeah, they do make like a little rack that's got little uh, little holders, and you basically yeah. put the handle of the brush in there and it hangs down and that is the best way to do it. But you don't need to go out and buy one of those in addition to your brushes and all that. But, but you don't have to (coughs) because you can design one in fusion 360 and 3d print your own. No, I can't. (laughs) Hey, He's, All he right, said, Stephanie. He, he said he was. He said he was buying me a beer if I could. Terms and conditions apply. In the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the next one's from Chris Becker. He actually sent us a couple emails, so I've just sort of uh, edited edited them into one. Sorry, Chris. We're so shit at answering emails that uh, he's had time to send us two. So uh, he was reading Kirill Kanyev's, uh figures FAQ, which I think is the best book on figures I've ever read. And it occurred to him that a lot of innovations in painting solutions that maximize visual interest, such as modulation, zenith or lighting, etc., seem to come from the figure world. And it occurred to me, why not one more? So, painting natural metal finish for aircraft is a royal pain in the fucking ass. So why not try a similar technique that aviation artists like Daryl Legg and Romain Hugolt use with reflections and texture across the surface, just like Kirill employs for his mastical a masterful sorry non-metallic metal finishes what do you think non-metallic metal nope no not fans no because you you have to be you have to view this thing from one particular place for it to work yep 
if you're doing a painting, you can't walk around to the side of the painting and get a different view of the subject in the painting. It's it's just there. With a three-dimensional object like a model, it's going to work from where you're looking at it on the bench, and then you're going to move to another side, and it's it's just, you know, the reflection should travel as the model moves, and it's not going to. But but wait, guys, what, but the figures that Kirill paints are 3D figures. Well, uh, yeah, and they're always photographed from the angle that works. No, it takes it for different angles and it does work, but you've got a lot of smaller surfaces breaking up the reflection on a figure. Mm-hmm. On an aircraft, you've got the whole fuselage, the whole wing, and to make that as consistent and fool the eye, I think is a lot harder. So... I agree with you three. I'm not sure it could work on an aircraft, but I'd love to see someone prove me wrong. Absolutely. Uh, he also enjoyed episode 13 uh, of the interview with Chris Clayton saying he was doubly pleased to hear he was not alone in how this hobby has had tremendous help in dealing with the outside forces in the world and how important the hobby is to us personally. I'm so glad to find fellows who are as passionate about our little world and especially wanting to get better. The post-interview talk gave me the sit-up straight back of the neck chills. So thank you personally, Tracy, Will and Chris. Uh, yeah, I think for all of us, that was um, a really good interview. And I think I think he's going to get a lot out of today's interview as well for that same reason. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, wait, wait, wait till you hear what's coming. Yeah. And his final moment was a big what the fuck. Uh he wants to know what the hell that rap song was about. Uh, I think he's talking about Chrissy Elliott. All I can say is Chrissy may well be back in the future. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, she wasn't going to, but now I've read that. Yeah. Apparently he had us on uh, full volume on the computer uh, and had to run back in the room and turn it off fast so other people didn't hear it, which is quite funny. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> The next one is from Brian O'Donoghue. I've known Brian for years, since I got back into modelling about 15 years ago on the military modelling website. Really good guy. Uh, He's also a very keen and very good uh, amateur photographer. Uh, He loves the content of the interviews and the Paint 101. He wonders why people feel the need to offer advice on social media about paint thinners. Well, I think we can all agree with that, since a lot of it's bullshit. The, oh yeah, I thin all my paints with insert household product and it's great how about if you're not sure just stick with the manufacturer's thinner i think tracy you said that when we talked about thinners previously yeah yeah i mean that's that's a that, that's always the safe rule for sure and, and 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 for beginners you know that may be the best advice but i also get annoyed with guys who say oh just always use the manufacturer because that's ridiculous that's that's just limiting and it's just not based in reality. So, you know, this is one of those things. Well, I always used the Tamiya thinner, and um, and you got me onto Mr. Leveling thinner, and I've never looked back. I've never bought Tamiya uh, X22A since. So, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. just um, the Mr. Color stuff is phenomenal. Yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of confusion and misinformation out there. You know, that's that's why that's why we're having the conversations we're having. He knows a lot of folks struggle with photography as well. There's a steep learning curve, and the quicker that you master the basics, the easier your life becomes. Car- uh, cameras, he thinks, are dumb as fuck. Folks are disappointed, mainly because it takes a lot of work to get a great photo. Uh, he uses DSLRs and uh, still gets bad shots sometimes, just like we all do. 
cameras are really bad at white balance ask the camera to do it itself and you're using a colored background and it will get it all wrong generally on mine it has a function where you can on my uh, nikon um dslr where you can get it to calibrate for white where you put a white sheet in front of it no, so it knows what white no, looks like no 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 okay ah. what's the best way to do it will <laughs> Sorry, professional photographer background coming to the foreground. Look, white balance, yeah, the little robots in your fucking digital SLR are dumb, but they're easy to train. And white balance is one of those things that just people overcomplicate the fuck out of it. There is no need in most cases to do a custom white balance. There's just not. Okay. It's not, it's not hard to do. And what Chris is talking about? Oh, where sorry. You've... When I said I do it, I mean me. That wasn't me reading Brian. That's what I. No, I know, yeah, yeah, I knew that, that's yeah. what you were saying. And yeah, yeah you're going to photograph a plain white thing. It can be a T-shirt. It can be a sheet of paper. It can be whatever. And you're going to tell the little robots, "This is white." But you don't even have to do that. Just if you're using good quality lights that are daylight balanced, which most LEDs are these days. Just put your fucking camera on daylight white balance and, and and just take them all. And then if you need a little bit of correction in post, that's easy enough to do if you're using Lightroom. If you're using, you know, if you're still one of those trolls who's using old school incandescent light bulbs, there's a white balance setting <laughs> for that too. You know, if you're working by candlelight, that's the same white balance. Um, you know, it's not, it just doesn't have to be that hard. Uh, but whatever you do, don't please, for the love of God, don't use auto white balance. That will fuck you up. Um, uh, I'll have to ask you then for me, Will, I use, uh, no fewer than four daylight bulbs to get light all around and everything else. Mm -hmm. and i get the right iso as far as i can tell to take the photos and everything else but when it and i only shoot on white um because that's a publishing thing that it's so much easier to put photos onto a white background i also hate blue backgrounds because they always they suck. you always get reflective <laughs> light on the model and the model ends up looking a sort of sickly greenish color because of the reflective mm -hmm. blue Yep. Uh, and it, it sucks donkey balls. The only thing white is good for is shooting white plastic on. For some reason, it, it actually it looks good on blue, which it doesn't on obviously on white. The fucker just washes out. So, but my backgrounds when my photos come out always look a little bit grey. What am I doing wrong? You may just be a little underexposed. But if I turn it up, the model ends up overexposed. So, so what happens? This is another place where the little robots are just stupid. If you have a scene that's largely white. Like if you go outside and snow on the ground or you sheet of white paper or whatever, the little robot looks at that and it's like, oh shit, that's super bright. I need to compensate by underexposing a little bit. Mm. So that happens when you're using an auto exposure mode like aperture priority, shutter priority, um, and you compensate for that by using exposure compensation. So, you know, when you look through the viewfinder, you got that little scale at the bottom and it looks like, yeah. like kind of like a ruler. And most of the time it's got a little marker in the middle. So if you've got your shutter button pressed halfway down and you rotate the whichever knob it is on your camera, it'll move mm -hmm. that marker to the right or to the left. 
So moving it to the right is going to overexpose a little bit. Moving it to the left is going to underexpose a little bit. So when you're focus, so when you're shooting against that white background, yeah, you're typically going to need, um, you know, each of those little hash marks on that scale is a third of a stop, and you're typically going to need, you know, a plus three or or a uh, or I mean a plus one or a plus two. Uh, that's a, each of those is a third of a stop to compensate for what the what the camera's trying to do to under to, to lower the exposure value because it thinks it's too bright. You might even right. need to go a full full, full stop over. Yeah, give that a try. That's the most common reason that people's white backgrounds look gray is it's that it's just a little underexposed. I just adjust all that in post. You can, for sure. Um, you yeah, know, there's a lot but it never quite works that well for me in post. I mean, it's look, it's always better if you can get it. It's the old photographer saying, always better if you can get it yeah. right in camera. Um, but sometimes you just have to tweak it in, in post. And, you know, I'm a if, Tracy, are you using Lightroom? No, I'm actually using uh, iPhoto. Yeah. Which yeah. is, it's after coming from, you know, an illegally bootlegged copy of Photoshop for, you know, a couple of decades. Um <laughs> <laughs> when, when my that's the FBI coming around your house because they they all listen to this. Well, look, man, uh, that computer is long dead and gone. So good luck proving anything. <laughs> um, and not having Photoshop on my new computer, uh, I'm actually pretty okay with the built-in uh, editing software in iPhoto. It's it's not bad for what we're doing. Yeah, we could have a whole episode too about photography, but you know the other podcasts have all have, have done that too. And so you know, I don't know how deep we want to go, but but yeah, that's that's kind of the simple. simple I mean, if we get enough it. people writing in about it, I'll think about it. But I would certainly say sure. go look at the Plastic Posse podcast. Their past episodes, they did a really good episode on photography, and I well, point people there first. And, and we have a we have a guy in <coughs> SMCG. He's not. He doesn't show up much anymore. Uh, but his name is Jeff Bartlett and Jeff is a, he, he's a, you know, kind of similar to me in that he's an engineer by day and professional photographer by, by night. Um, and he wrote a book. Uh, it's an ebook that you can buy and download and it's like five bucks or something. It's a really good value and it is specifically, uh, photography for model makers and it's really good. I would encourage anybody who's looking to, you know, to learn more as it applies to what we do to go get Jeff's book. Uh, let's throw a link to that up in the show notes. Yeah, we should for sure. Yeah, for sure. Send me that, Will. I'll make sure that goes up. Yeah. Okay, so finally, uh, Brian says he loved our discussion about mental health. Uh, I also know Brian was in the military and he spent far too many years with um, suffering from PTSD from things he saw while he was serving uh, and eventually had treatment. The journey was a long one and I'm a bit of a mental health champion these days. We all hear the phrase, it's good to talk, but most of all, it's important to listen. Um, I've been a plenary speaker on a number of mental health first aid courses, sorry, mental health first aid courses, and I'll quite often say, listen to the words that are not said. You have to know the person, but sometimes we just need to listen. And as, as good as it is to talk about... Um, mental health as we have it's nice to hear some advice for those helping people with it as well well we certainly not to 
what's cat out of the bag, but the, you know, in the, in the upcoming segment, you're going to hear a little bit more about mental health and, uh, and just listening to someone else talk about their own mental health journey and, you know, the, the ways the hobby helps them. Um, has, I don't know. It's just, it's, it is really important to listen. You can start mm-hmm. to identify things that you might be going through as well by listening to other people's experiences and not only just to, to be able to empathize, but maybe it can be helpful in you kind of figuring out how this can help you as well. Definitely. Okay. Jake Isley writes, uh, episode 14 was absolutely the best podcast to date. The discussion on acrylics was on fucking point. Uh, even if it got geeky technical, it probably made perfect sense to those not in the know about acrylics. Well, we hope so. That's the point. There's no point covering it if you're not going to get geeky and technical. Uh, you covered the topics I constantly see misinformation about on Facebook and other forums. And the discussion was great. Um, paired with the Last Model Geeks podcast, where we're going back a bit. He wrote in a couple of months ago. Uh, the one he's referring to is the Model Geeks with Jeff Hearn of Scale Colors. Uh, interesting stuff about Tracy and his issues with MMP because he loves it. Uh, he said it's the least shittiest option out of all the acrylics out there. Uh, specifically, I like that it's a has a great translucency which allows you to build it up in thin layers. Uh, but it has well-documented fuckery uh, like his post on SMCG with its sea blue. Um, I think it's one of those things. I don't know what you think, Tracy, but I, I think, uh, and will, but I think quite often, as much as we be, try to be definite about materials, a lot of it is down to what works for you. And if it works for you, that's great. Yeah, but I'll be the first one to admit that my problems with uh, Mission Models Paint are are self-inflicted. Like, uh, other people are getting mm-hmm. great results with it. There's something I'm doing wrong. And I think just based on, uh, again, it, when you ask for advice about anything on the internet, you're you're hit with like a shotgun blast of opinions you'll get every opinion yeah uh but when you sift through all the bullshit uh what it seems to me that i'm doing is that i'm thinning it wrong i'm thinning it as if it were a tamiya paint and it just doesn't require quite that much thinner so it is something i am going to i mean i've had periodic success with it um i'm just not super comfortable and super skilled with it yet, but I'll be, I think on this little Panzer one, I'm going to be returning to at least uh, using it for a couple of different coats. I'm of a somewhat intermediate point of view on that. Um, Look, paint is one of those things that certainly uh, you can apply the user error uh, clause to many times when, when people are having issues, there's no doubt. With all the confusion about paint chemistry and all these things, there's no shortage of those examples. But there are materials that are just objectively bad. There are, you know, there are products that of any type that are just objectively bad. They just don't perform well. I mean, that's that's the truth. And I get a little annoyed when people are, you know, when some guy comes on, you know, and says, "Hey, I'm having trouble with." Never had a problem. Yeah, and you get these guys who are like never had a problem or they're just automatically, well, it just must be user error. I mean, you know, when like they really double down. It must be user error because I've never had a problem. 
<laughs> those are the guys that get me banned from groups because it's it's like it's <laughs> yeah, like waving. You're the guy that gets you banned from groups. That's that's true because <laughs> because I'm a because I'm a because I'm a weak man, and that's like waving a red flag in front of a bull because it, it's just fucking bullshit. I mean, seriously. You don't know. You don't know what that guy's doing. You, it's presumptuous to declare that it must be user error, especially given that some materials just suck. And so I'm not convinced that Tracy is inflicting these problems with Mission Model on himself. Because when you look across the spectrum of commentary about some of these materials, you start to see things that are really common. And you kind of go, well, all right, if that many people think that Vallejo Surface Primer is garbage... Maybe there's a reason, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, random opinions on the internet are one thing, but if modelers you know and you mm-hmm. know know how to model are saying that it's not good, then maybe it's something you don't want to try. If they're saying the, it is good and you know they work as well, though, similar, worth giving it a go. 100%. You know, the thing that you should always sort of try to ask yourself, in my opinion, is are they doing the same things that I'm doing? Uh, you know, like, like the, the mm-hmm. Vallejo Surface Primer example is is a perfect one because if you're just blowing that stuff on minis, you know, and or figures or diorama bases or whatever, and that's it, fine. It may be awesome. You may never have a problem. But if you're an aircraft modeler and you're doing a lot of body work and a lot of sanding, you're probably not going to like that stuff. Um, so, Or an armor modeler and a lot of masking from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's always worth de- delving into the details to figure it out. And uh, you know, a lot of these generic answers on Facebook groups just don't aren't good for that, right? But by the same token, the reason I say that I'm I feel like I'm the problem is because we do know extremely talented and capable modelers who are using Mission Models Paint without any problems, and it's it's part of our like Mike Rinaldi and David Parker. You know, David Parker uses it all the yeah. time, so. And the other thing is, I, like, I, I own a lot of it. And before I just chuck it in the garbage, it's sort of a challenge to me to be like, okay, like, make it work. Like, do everything you can to make it work. And if, if in the end, making it work is a pain in the ass or you can't make it work, then, you know, uh, I'll keep it for brush painting. But, again, I, I'm, it's sort of a challenge to me to, to be able to try to figure out what I'm doing. You know, it's maybe not one of the most important parts of the craft, but I feel like it's more than just building and painting and finishing that you want to push your ability levels in, you know, and it's also materials. Yeah. I just think it's really important to identify the specific thing that you're having an issue with, with whatever material it is, and then compare that specific thing. And sometimes that means really sifting through the bullshit, like Tracy said, because, like, let's take one of the common complaints with, with, with Mission, and it's only some of the colors, that it's super translucent. Like, didn't he bring that up in the, in the email? Yeah. That it, yeah, it, it takes a lot. It. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that with, like, the orange. Okay, I've used their orange, and it is pretty translucent. It took a lot of layers to get good coverage. Now, some guys don't think that's a problem, right? Some guys like that. They like the translucency because it contributes to their end goal in a way that, that, that makes their workflow go better. Whereas some other guy might want to just blow a couple of layers and get a fully opaque layer and be done, right? So for that guy, it's a problem. The other guy, it's not a problem. 
So you have to identify the specific issue and relate that back to what you're trying to accomplish. For sure. Okay. Now, the other thing he loved was the interview with, uh, this is Jake still, with the um, with Paul Budzik. He thought it was excellent. With uh, He had a lot of predispositions uh, about Paul, and the interview shattered every single one. I think for, for a lot of us, it was quite a, an eye-opening interview. His thoughts towards scale modeling and literally everything that's preached uh, are literally everything that's preached in SMCG. The discussion on tooling was fantastic and how basic modeling skills, in quotes, is bullshit <laughs> and we should be embracing excellent, well-engineered kits. The IPMS talk and building not to win prizes or acclaim, but to discuss and learn how people build their models was on point. I also thought the discussion on pre-shading was terrific and how to check your references and do the techniques right. Really incredible how relatable and down-to-earth Paul was and not some pretentious modeler. Now, <laughs> that's going to lead us straight into the next email from uh, Ramon Lomelli. Ramon says, Hey guys, first of all, I want to say I love your show. It's inspired me, entertained me, caused me to think and reevaluate how I approach different modeling problems, and you are helping me to learn and grow. Thanks for putting it on. Thanks for listening. Now to get to my reason for emailing, I really enjoyed the interview with Paul Budzik until he said he had something to the effect that if someone does something on a 3D, 3D printer, he has nothing to say to them because the printer does all the work. And then in big letters, God damn it! What a disappointment. The episode truly added credence to the old adage of never meet your heroes. To say the printer does all the work is not only narrow-minded, it is the same as the dudes that used to say that people who build plastic models are cheating because all the parts are pre-molded for them instead of the OGs that used to carve their models out of a block of wood with a blunt spoon. <laughs> uh, these are just machines and they do what you tell them to do. You still need to actually know what to do and to tell them so they can do it and do it correctly. Uh, modeling the parts is a whole new skill and getting successful prints is another skill on top of that. In summary, if you want to learn 3D modeling or printing, just go for it. Now, I'm going to first to answer this one. I think he's either misunderstood or he's mischaracterizing what Paul was about, really. Um, I don't think scratch building is superior to 3D. It's just not the same thing as 3D. They are different skills with with parity of esteem. Okay, 3D is brilliant. And for some things, well, put it like this. I'm thinking of doing some ship kits. There's no way I'd hand master them now. They would be 3D done because that is far and away the best way to do them. But there's something about working with your hands that's different from sitting at a screen and doing it. It's not easier or harder or better or worse or anything else. It's just different. And there's something for some people like me, and I, I dare to say Paul, Hopefully I'm not, I'm not really speaking for him, but that there's just something personally magical, about, for want of a better word, about working with your hands that I don't get when I'm designing etch on a screen. So there you go. Paul likes working with his hands. <laughs> what can I say? Uh, and he Will, should, he... <laughs> 3D man, tell me no, I'm wrong. No, no, you're not. You're not wrong at all. I mean, listen, I was, I was doing hand work long before I was doing 3D printing. So you're, you're, you're not wrong at all. I, you know, I think this is a good example of where, you know, things come across differently to different people and certainly differently in actual voice than they do in little bitty words on little bitty screens. Because, 
you know, if you'd read Paul's words on a Facebook group, you might have been like, oh, God damn it. That's, you know, and, and it, but listening to the way he presented it for me. Yeah, I jokingly say, OK, that's it. Paul's not my hero anymore. That's not true at all. I, you know, I still love Paul. Um, he first of all, because he's welcome to his opinion. I mean, we all like different things. And and I understood that what he was saying that was for him in his perception when he looks at those things and he compares them for whatever reason to stuff that's hand built, it doesn't have the same flavor for him. And I totally get that, 100% get that. And, uh, you know, if you're just going to download some file from Thingiverse or whatever and print it and stick it on your model... That's not really a whole lot different from buying a resin aftermarket part and sticking it on your model. You know, you can't claim any level of scratch building for that thing. You know, you didn't create it. On the other hand, if you're like me and you're designing your own, you know, GBU 54 and printing it and and figuring out how to make it fit and going back and engineering and doing the things that you got to do, you know, that to me has a little more, carries a little more creative weight. Still not the same as carving one out of, you know, little bits of styrene. Um, but again, it's, it's the, for me, it's the same level of satisfaction at the end of the day. I know that I created it even though I use different skills. I, I really have come to value 3D printed parts for what they are to me, for, for my builds. You know, if you want to work with your hands, uh, then assemble your photo etch tool clamps. Uh, but if you're like me, and that sounds like it sucks a lot, then <laughs> I'm going to buy the 3D printed tool clamps and just glue them on. Like, if I'm going to scratch build something, and if I'm going to detail something, it's something that's, that doesn't exist, or it's very easy to do, or it satisfies me on some level. Folding and assembling photo etch tool clamps does not fulfill anything good in my life. Cutting a little 3D printed photo etch tool clamp off and gluing it on, mwah, that's fantastic, because then I can move on to something else. Assembler. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever, it's just like... I'm, I'm pulling your chain. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I have know to you say, are. if I was buying aftermarket, I'd, I'd pick 3D over etch. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's something, like, I don't want a 3D printed uh, grill screen. Photo Etch is fine for that. But when it comes to how I spend my time and what I enjoy spending my time doing, bending and folding and gluing or, you know, if you solder or solder your uh, your Photo Etch parts, if, if that floats your boat, that's great. That's a good use of your time, man. But 3D printing is fulfilling at least in this particular aspect, it's fulfilling my desire for a nicer detail than I get in a kit part, but it's something that I can do and glue onto the, the vehicle and move on to the next thing. So it, it's all about what you like to do. That's the key thing right there. That is the key thing. Yeah. It's all about Absolutely. what floats your boat. Yep. We also got an email on that subject from uh, Carlos. I'm going to try this, Carlos. Ruiz? Ruiz, yeah. Ruiz, there we go. Thank you. Uh, who's one of our patrons. Thank you, Carlos, for your continued support. Uh, hello, Will, Tracy, and Chris. Greetings from Mexico. Ooh, we're getting some Hola, worldwide approval here. Shut up. 
Okay. I enjoy listening to several other modelling-related ones, but your intellectual and inquiring approach to give it a name. Thank you. That makes it sound clever. To the hobby, along with remarkable guests, makes yours unique and an absolute pleasure to listen. Speaking of guests, I admire Paul Budsett's work since the days of his FSM articles and the PBY and B17. I have him as a benchmark on constructing an accurate and flawless model. Carlos goes on to say that he's got into 3D printing recently and he enjoys it. Uh, he's did, used to do scratch building, but now he's into 3D as well. And he, he gets as much joy out of one as the other. Uh, it's a blast listening to one of my favorite modelers interviewing another. Like Will, I'm in the storytelling via weathering camp. Keep going uh, with the great work you're doing. I wish you the best for you and your families in this new year. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Sí, muchas gracias. <laughs> oh, this is just going to keep going, is it? Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, well, let's move on. I wonder if he knows where uh, er, the next guy comes from. The next is, uh, I believe, another patron, Eric uh, Kintzner. Eric has been listening to the recent episodes and wanted to congratulate us on providing a modeling podcast that does not overlap with the other modeling podcasts he listens to. Top-notch modelers as interview subjects. He really enjoyed the Paul Budzik one. I hope you're going to enjoy today's as well, Eric. So despite your obvious greater skills, I don't feel like I'm being talked down to. Um, I think Lester put it best last week that at some point everyone's models look the same. Yeah. So what do you guys think? I think that that's a huge compliment, you know, because because we're just we're just regular dudes who have just spent a lot of time at it and, you know, focused on the things that we love. And this is where we're at. Um, I you don't I, I mean, I don't think that makes any of us special and uh, I, you know so the fact that he feels like it's relatable I mean that's that's good that's what we're hoping for I think what we all have in common and what we have in common with a lot of modelers all of skill levels across the, the spectrum is that we're all just trying to get better like every project we do we want to challenge ourselves a little bit we want you know, every time you hear an interview with somebody like Lester, with somebody like Peter Usher, Marine, like all those people, every time we talk to them and we're talking to them a lot of times for the first time, they're inspiring us to want to do a little better. They're, they're, they're planting a little seed and like, OK, like I need to I need to see if I can push myself in that area. So if we're. By our antics, our words, our uh, discussions on whatever subjects that we talk about before we have these interviews, if we're doing even the tiniest amount of that for other people, that's what we want. We just want everybody to, to be happy and confident about just taking the next step every time they build a model, every time they try something. Just push yourself just to take one step further and one step further. And as far as skill levels go, maybe we've just been doing it a little longer. Um, it really, it really does take time and and actual experience to get better in this hobby. Um, that's kind of what it. I, I remember. I'm going to tell a story about art school, so everybody can just go ahead and pour a shot. Uh, <laughs> I had when I first started art school, I had a really talented teacher, and I had a really talented roommate. And I was, I felt like I was pushing myself, but I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. And I remember, you know, I went to my roommate, Doug, and I was like, hey, 
how come my work's not as good as yours? And how come my work is not as good as, as George's, my instructor? Like, how come I'm not that good? And, and he was like, because I'm 10 years, I've been doing this for 10 years longer than you. And George has been doing it for 20 years longer than you. He's like, don't try to catch up because you're never going to catch up. Provided that they continue to do it, they're always going to be X amount of years ahead of you in experience. So stop comparing yourself to somebody else and just realize that you're starting this journey. And in 10 years, your work might be where you feel mine is. And in 20 years, your work might be where you feel like George's is. So I think that's a really important thing to take into consideration is, is don't beat yourself up because you don't feel like your work's not where you want it to be. Just keep pushing yourself and keep going and you'll get there. That's how every single modeler got there. Nobody took the magic pill that you don't have access to to become super excellent, great modeler guy. It just takes work and experience in doing it. And you should enjoy the journey. So I think it's really important not to beat yourself up that you're not where somebody else is. Just, just keep pushing yourself, setting yourself goals that are attainable and be happy when you reach those goals and set a new set of goals and attain those. And that's what this journey is all about. I saw someone um, in another group on Facebook this week saying that he was going to leave because his models weren't as good as everyone else's. And I said, what you have to remember is everyone else's models looked like yours at some point. Uh, well, the other thing is they're probably not as bad as you think they are as well. But everybody's models at some point looked the way yours do. And then they kept going and kept going and kept going. Your models will look good as long as you keep trying to get better. The only way they won't is if you become satisfied with what you're doing and you don't want to improve. As long as you want to improve, you will always, even if it's very slow and incremental, you'll all, and sometimes it'll feel like you can't. But that's just where you're stuck on a plateau before you go up again you will get better. I was going to say a thing, but we're running long and I feel like honestly, we're into something that could yep. be its own episode. Uh, we had a, an email here. I've withheld the name because I asked him if we could read it out and he hasn't replied to me. So I don't want to, you know, um, uh, I don't want to read it out without permission, but I think it's something that maybe some other people listening have thought. And that's why I, I want to read it out. Um, Hi all, I enjoyed listening to the recent episodes of uh, Sprue Cutters. I grew up in a lower blue-collar union, bar-infested manufacturing city, and I can burn the ears off anybody. I also raised a family and work in a profession that expects very high levels of trust and moral ethics. I only humbly would make the suggestion. Uh, I understand the dedication and commitment it takes to put out such long and informative episodes. The information content is above reproach. I cannot recommend the podcast, however, to those under 18. I know it's old-fashioned and I'm a fossil. I cannot recommend it to my grandchildren, which is heartbreaking. People are free to speak their mind in any way they want. I would never censor anyone's right to speak the way they do. I would only recommend the podcast to members of my club. Uh, sorry, I would like to recommend the podcast to members of the club. Please mitigate the F-bombs. I do not know the minds of your guests on the last podcast. It seems they were somewhat uncomfortable. Again, very interesting podcast, and based on where I grew up, listenable without offence, but only to me at this present time. So, we do swear on the show. What do you guys think? 
yeah, I have to, I have to, <laughs> I have to control my response here because it's basically, yeah, fuck no, we're not changing what we do. And um, with all due respect, and I do mean that because he presented his opinion in a respectful way and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't being a dick about it. I get that he's got his point of view on language and his own standards, and that's totally cool. But everybody chooses to express themselves in the way that that feels best for them. And if that doesn't work for you, that's okay. You know, everybody has their thing. As far as not being able to recommend it to anybody who's under 18, look, I this is an issue I have a problem with. Because what you're basically saying is that at 17 years, 364 days, he can't hear me say fuck that. But at exactly 18 years, it's okay. And I just find that to be patently ridiculous. So, you know, that's my counterpoint to that. If you don't feel like you can do that, then that's cool. But just understand that this is how we choose to express ourselves. This is our show. We're going to do whatever the fuck we want. Tracy. Well, look, this is the way, this is a comfortable, relaxed atmosphere where we have frank and fun and entertaining discussions with each other. This is the kind of podcast that you would expect to hear this conversation at a bar, at a table with a bunch of people having already had a couple of beers, just letting loose. That doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to be civilized. I would never talk like this in front of your mother, you know? Like, I do have the ability to be professional, and I I mean, I run a business. Like, I don't talk to people at my business the way I talk to these people here and the way that I talk to our listeners. We also put the disclaimer up at the beginning. It's unfortunate that you feel like you can't recommend it because there's too much profanity, but... I I guess, you know, everybody else can listen to it. It's 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 your choice. Um, I've heard a lot worse language in a lot better places, so I think we're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, and I just have to say again, back to the age thing. If you think that your grandkids are not hearing worse at on the junior high school campus. You might want to check again. Yeah. I have a 13-year-old son, and I don't let him listen to the show because of the swearing. However, anything I want him to learn about modelling, I teach him myself, and I don't swear my head off while I'm doing it. Um, yeah, I, I believe some people call it code switching, That uh, although it's more for people that maybe... Um, Uh, have a way of speaking which isn't accepted by society but we all do it you switch between who you are in certain company and who you are in other company and you do it without thinking and i do it with my son i don't swear in front of my son but i do swear on this show and the reason is well there are many reasons first of all this show we don't get paid per listener we're not doing it to become the most popular thing in the world this show isn't interested in being the most popular scale modeling podcast. There are other podcasts for that. We just want to make the show we want to make. And part of that is we need to be relaxed when we're doing it. And if we're thinking about 
censoring ourselves all the time about what we say and how we say it, then we're not going to make the show we want to make. So we just relax and we be ourselves. And ourselves is we fucking swear. <laughs> just how it comes out. <laughs> yeah, and like Tracy said, like Will said, my son knows all the words, but he knows he's not allowed to use them. And I didn't teach them to him. He learned them elsewhere. So, you know, sorry that you don't feel you can recommend it, but we're not a show for everybody. We're a show for people that like what we make. And if they don't like it, it's not really a problem. Luckily, a lot of people do like it. And, and like and like you said, Chris, I mean, the key thing there is, as long as, as long as he likes listening to the show, take the things that we say that he feels are of value and then translate that into a more palatable delivery. If he's, you know, wants to pass that on to somebody else. Um, you know, you know, I, I think, I don't think it has to honestly be an either or kind of a thing. Also, I, we're not, I don't think any of us is telling him he's wrong or anything like that. It's just, we're explaining why we are like we are. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you, sir, for writing the letter and for putting it in such a respectful and calm way. It wasn't a complaint. It was just a suggestion of something we, I think that we might like to do. And I really appreciate the, the email. So thank you for that. Yeah, ab- abs- absolutely. Cause I've definitely seen people come at, you know, YouTube presenters or whatever, mm. who, you know, use a certain kind of language in a much less positive and diplomatic way. So absolutely. We appreciate that. All right. Something we really do get a lot of very hard complaints about is length. So, <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm sorry if we didn't get your letter. We'll try and do it next time. We're going to have uh, an interview now with the superb uh, figure painter and generally all-round great person, Margot Crombaker. Enjoy. Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etched sets for all kinds of modelling genres. From armour to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know, because I use it myself. I love it so much, I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding. Sharp and clean detail, well-designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high-quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail, but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. Friends, we'd like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Our Patreon supporters help us pay for the hosting, distributing, and recording of this show, and we really do appreciate all of their support. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, please follow the link on our show notes or go to patreon.com and search for the Sprue Cutters Union. Today, we'd like to thank our ongoing supporters, Mark C., Devin, George, Alvaro, Flip, Adrian, Billy, Austin, Owen, Alexander, Marcos, Brad, John, Mike, Eric, Mike W, Joel, Carlos, Chris, Dennis, Mark G, Andy, Chris, 
Carl, and Chris L. We really do appreciate your support. It means a lot to us, and it's a great help to us getting the podcast out to the public. So once again, thank you. The following interview gets into some pretty deep and personal stuff, stuff that some people may find upsetting. Welcome to the Sprue Cutters Union, Margot. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Can you? Hi, Margot. Uh, wait, wait. We want to say we want to say hi too. Hi, Margot. Hi, Captain. I'm nervous too. <laughs> hi, Tracy. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Yeah, we. I think we're all kind of nervous because we sort of feel like we have to be on our best behavior today. No, you know? no, you don't have. No, no. <laughs> and we're really not professional, so we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. I'm always one of the guys, so I'm I'm used to it. So don't worry. Well, and you know, since we had your other half on here before, he's probably warned you that that we tend to be profane and irreverent. Yeah, but I listen to a lot of your podcasts, and so okay. yeah, I didn't prepare anything because I heard Chris Clayton <laughs> saying that he was preparing a lot of things and. He didn't need it, so I'm I'm open, and uh, so just be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be bad advice. <laughs> uh, maybe, not, maybe not. Certainly for Will. <laughs> oh, Will. <laughs> well, uh, it, when I see his name uh, at the podcast, Captain Cannabis, uh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we should explain that we in our for all the listeners in our Squadcast app, you you know you can put your your name in uh, when you enter the session, and that's kind of our tradition is we always put you know something, and of course today because they're being on their best behavior, Chris and Tracy put their actual <laughs> names. Yep. Oh. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, Will, it saves us having to explain who we are to people when you forget to introduce yourself. <laughs> Which we do sometimes. We do sometimes. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. Like we got, uh, it was, was it Chris Clayton? We got halfway through the interview and he was calling you by uh, I, the name you put on there, not your I real think name. I, picked, I think I picked <laughs> Joe Bishop that day and he was like, okay, so Joe. Yeah, and he, was, he kept calling me Joe. <laughs> oh, no, it was... Um, <laughs> That was Peter oh, Usher. It was Peter that was, Usher, that's that it. Oh, I, I think you're calling Captain. <laughs> <laughs> so, questions. What do you want to know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Chris, I, Chris, I think Margot is directing the uh, the podcast today. <laughs> and what would you like to ask us, Margot? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. It's up to you. Okay, so you're famous for your figure painting, figure work, uh, a lot of fantasy work particularly. How did you get started in painting figures? Uh, well, the simple answer is because of SMC. I was always very creative, drawing, knitting. I mean, I always want to do something with my hands. And... Once Robert started with uh, with a show with SMC, I get in contact with painted figures, and I knew there were painted figures like for for dioramas, military, 
But what I saw then was for me an eye opener that I was thinking, wow. And I said to Robert, oh, do they paint all these small details? Everything is it everything painted? Yeah, Robert said is everything painted. I said, wow, I want to do that too, but I don't know how to start. So the first figure that I bought, uh, I give to Robert because I didn't know how to start. And then on another show, the first show in the hotel uh, in Koningshof, I get in contact with uh, some guys uh, from fantasy uh, painting. It was Roman Lapat. It's a guy from Germany. And uh, he convinced me that I can paint. But I, he, he showed me, take this figure. It's a lion bust and start tomorrow. Take some paint from Robert. Go sit on his desk. Start to paint. And doesn't matter what color. Just just do what you like. And if Robert say it's not okay, then kick him out of the room. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bust and I didn't know anything. So the bust was real nice painted, in my opinion, and also in Robert's opinion. But then I start to make a base like you make for figures. And I put the the bust uh, on that base. And then Robert said, yeah, but you don't need to do that on the base like this. And I said, get out. But after that, I want to go to more serious painting. And uh, my first figure, serious figure, was from uh, Fair Miniatures. And I know they had a a, a step-by-step on the internet. And that was actually my second. And the first that I put in uh, in the contest. And from there there on... uh, that's the beginning, and I never stopped painting. I was so happy with that painting, and, and, and the whole world was getting open for me. And then I saw figures from Peppa, and I mean, I was like a child with Christmas. So that, that's how I started. So did you have a like a painting background of any kind before? Like, were you doing traditional canvas painting or anything? Well, I started as an... Uh, autodidact painting with acrylic on canvas and it was more like uh, it was not realistic painting but but uh, with different mediums with different stuff it, 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 I built up a canvas but I couldn't handle the, the acrylic I didn't know how to use acrylic and then I get stuck and then I, I, I said to Robert I want to learn how to paint with oil and um, so on an evening uh, I, I go on the internet I was looking for a place to do an academy for adults and I found out that in Belgium it's very cheap it's almost for free it's a very good academy uh, and there was some place left so two weeks later I started there and um, it was more, um, it, w- it was an art academy, one day in the week, but it was very strict also with, uh, uh, it took a half year before we started to, to paint with oil. So it was compositions, it was all that stuff what you learn at the academy. And um, once we start with oil, I was really scared about mixing the colors because with acrylic is mixing colors not the same as with oil 
But I, I thought it, it, it will be very difficult to, to mix colors with oil. But funny enough, it, it, it was the most easy thing for me to do. And the other ladies asked me, but how do you do it? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I needed to mix some, some greenish color. And we, we only make studies. We didn't paint really finished paint. We make studies. And, and then the girl said, but your green is totally different than mine. And, and so we took the bottle that we needed the, the face. And my, my color was actually really okay. And hers was completely different. And then I didn't know how I did it. And then the, the teachers told me, some people have an eye for color. You cannot learn seeing colors. It's something you have in you. And we all see a color different. If we have one, one green color, all of us see it different. And it's a gift that you can see the colors like they are and that I... My mind knew at that moment that I needed to add a little bit yellow to that color to make it the right color that the vase had. And I, and I really was surprised about myself. So colors was my, my, my strong point. And um, also the volumes was also something that I was really good in. I was really not, not good in portraits or that kind of stuff. But these things... That was good. And then after three years, I stopped because it was too heavy with my health, everything. And I stopped and then I started on a canvas with oil. But then the figures came. And everybody told me, you have, you have to paint that with acrylic. You cannot paint that with oil. You have to paint that with acrylic. So and I started again with... That stupid acrylic, and then I <laughs> cover your ears, Lester. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. I mean, it's not, but it's. And then I asked Alexander uh, Cortina Bonastre because I know he painted with oil, and I said, "Why do I need to start with acrylic? Why can I just like on a canvas start when it's prime my figure? I want to start with oil." And he said. There's no reason why you can't do that. So, and then I went to the oils and I was happy with painting. Are you still painting primarily with oil? Well, yeah, I took now about uh, two years that I practiced a lot with acrylics because a friend of mine, a Russian friend, uh, Kirill Kanaev, he always said to me, you need to paint with acrylics. And I said, no, I don't want. He said, yes, and you have. <laughs> and because my details were not good enough. And so I listened to him and I started again with acrylic. And actually the, the, the last uh, fantasy figures that I painted are almost completely with acrylic. But still I missed my oils. And now I'm back with my oils but I saw that I learned a lot uh, by using the acrylic, acrylic by especially painting the details more accurate and everything. So my hands learned to be more straight and everything. So now I use them both. 
I, I noticed recently on one of your Facebook posts that you had said something about uh, going back to something you were more comfortable with. And I thought yeah. maybe you were talking about a style, but it sounds like that you, that, that you meant you were going to go back to, to using more oils. Yeah. 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 So Margo, what was the specific problem with your details when you were using oil that acrylic did better? And how did you transition back into oil and bring that back around with oils? I think the the thinning of my oils was not not right. It was too thin, and um, so I think that was the biggest problem. And by using the acrylic, I also practice more the the details, and my hands get used to to the details. And once I I start again, I do I did now two figures again with oil. I saw a demonstration of Alexander in uh, Paris, and I don't know, in one or the other way, my experience from um, the art academy, how to use the oil, came back, that you don't need to thin them so much, that I, you don't need to use them as washes. I can paint with them like I painted on a canvas. What they call wet and wet. It's not uh, a la prima or a la pasta. But and in the past, I think I, I thinned them too much because it's a tiny figure and you're scared to, to use the paint really like painting. And in one or the other way, I don't know, it was a click that I had now when I started with uh, uh, Genghis Khan, that I don't need to thin my paint so much. I can paint with the oil like I do it on canvas. And that's together with experience with acrylics. And I think it's good to, to, to try something that, that get out of your comfort zone. I think that's that's something that a lot of people now and then need to try. Hey. For listeners, I just um, we can we can share the screen when we're talking. I've just put up Margot's Genghis Khan. Yeah. So we can have a bit of a a zoom in there. Yeah. So this was done with oils. Yeah, that was my my uh, back to complete in uh, in oil. So this is a hundred percent oil from from beginning to end. Yeah. Wow, it's so good, Margot. We'll put um an album up of the of the things the the pieces we talk about so that when people are listening along they can go on facebook look at that and, and um yeah look at the ones yeah. you're talking about okay yeah, yeah. and the uh, funny thing the metal is with uh printer's ink mm. and printer's Print- ink yeah mm. and you use it like oil you thin it with the same uh thinner yeah. And then you use it like oil, and it's so easy to to paint metal with this printer's ink. It's 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 amazing. I mean, I'm I'm not good in blending, especially when you have a big figure like this. So I started with acrylic on the metal, and then I said, no, 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 <laughs> And then I I now I yeah, it's all uh, printer's ink and oil. So it's non-metallic metal, yeah. No, yeah, it's it's printer's ink. It's actually metallic. Oh, it is metallic. It, okay. It, it, yeah. I wonder, I wonder it, if it's an enamel. It's. Huh. 
small bottle like this. I buy it from uh, uh, Dino Pivato who sells the bases. And it's hard to find it because I try to find it in the, in the shops, but it's not an inked. It's printing inked. So it's very thick. It's not like, like an ink that you use for, for inlining or whatever. Oh, when you say printer's ink for printmaking, for like uh, yes. etching or... Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Sorry, yes. for a long time then, I'm thinking like book printing for some reason. Oh, I was too. I was too. <laughs> Maybe it's because I make books, but yeah. Yeah, it's for printing. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's but real. It, but it's, it, it's it, it thins with mineral spirits just like your oils do? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow, yeah. very cool. Yeah, and it dries really fast. And uh, you don't need a lot of it. And I mean, I have, I think, 15 colors. But it, it's it's so fun to paint. And uh, you can, if you start with printer's ink, you can also mix it with the oil. So if you want to have a more darker gold or more uh, less uh, less shiny, then you can add some uh, um, oil paint, and then you can mix it. So it's it's you, you have a lot of opportunities to do with this uh, with this printing ink. So I'm gonna have to look into that. I think it must be an enamel or something if it blends with. Yeah, oil. I, I bet it must. Yeah, I bet it must be. Not enamel. Not uh, what you say, Chris. Uh, enamel. No, it's not. It's, it's different because we have it here also. And I uh, cannot pronounce the, the name of the <laughs> stuff that you say. So that, But it's not the same. It's completely different. Yeah, I have some that, and it comes in tubes like oil paint. Oh. But not metallic. I have uh, for printmaking. Uh, yes. Like blacks and things like It also comes in a small tin like shoe polish. Um, and, oh. you, and you can put it on a brazier and roll it and then okay. roll your print out. So it's, it's, yeah. it's very similar to oil, maybe a little thinner and a little butterier. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and it, it dries. So every time when I, when it starts to dry out in the bottle, a bottle, I put a little bit of the thinner on top of it. So you can use it longer because it can get really hard and st- stick into the little pot i don't know where he get th- this little pot but uh it's, we're gonna have I, to find out <laughs> yeah well i think a lot of uh, listeners are going to look at this figure as genghis khan and the first question that they're going to want to know the answer to is about drying time because you know that's the thing that that scares a lot of people uh, about oils um so you know, you hear people say, oh, it takes forever to dry. So what do you do to deal with drying times and being able to paint, you know, different colors on top of each other? The drying time is not so long as people think. And it doesn't have to be completely dry to start again. But of course, you have to practice a little bit. And I mean... When I have, for example, the Genghis Khan, I paint. I painted the blue from the from the skirt, and you can almost paint it in in one session because you can blend it in. You you mix your colors on your palette from uh, the the dark to the mid tone and to the light, and you can almost 
do it in one session and then uh, later on you can make a little bit more light on top or little but that that is something you do with a, a very thin layer but the, the whole sleeve or the skirt you can do it in one one session you don't need to start with the dark and then the, it's one session. It's learning to blend the colors is the most important thing of painting with uh, oils. So you're doing, it sounds like a lot of wet on wet blending to get your your highlights and your shadows. Yeah, yeah. And you can go on for, for a pretty long time. And if I need to do more, I leave it and I go to another part of the figure. But... Actually, also the face you can you can do in two or three three sessions. It's the the most difficult, I think, for the most people who did who are not used to uh, work with oils, is blending, because it's not blending like uh, you do with acrylic. You you put two colors next. Or to to uh, mid tone and 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 light close to each other, and then you start to 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 blend it to each other, and then you start to blend it to each other. But every two, three, four strokes, you clean your brush. And what most people are doing is they keep blending and blending and blending, and then at the end, everything has the same tone of you get color. Muddy. Mixed, yeah. yeah yeah but once you know how to blend it's it's actually it's very easy but that's my opinion that thing you said about cleaning your brush every three or four strokes that's that's something that that's really subtle that a lot of i'm sure a lot of people don't do or don't realize i i know i don't so that's something i'm going to work on but mm -hmm. i can see where that could make a huge difference so, Margaret, yeah. are you actually cleaning the brush with dinner, getting the paint all out? Are you, no, 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 no. You're just wiping I have off two, the brush. Two brushes. Okay. One for putting on the, the paint on the figure. And then a dry brush. Not a dry brush like, like you use for yeah. dry brushing, but a clean, not yeah. wet brush. And this brush you use for the blending. And then you clean it on a paper. Yeah, you just like, wipe it off. Like, yeah, wipe the it same, off. Same way you should do for oil paint rendering, I think, as well. Like? On uh, oil paint rendering on, um, like, vehicles and aircraft and what mm -hmm. have you. The, you apply the oil with one brush and then do the blending and everything, the working it exactly. with another brush. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you're using the oils straight out of the tube when you do that technique, right? No. You always need to thin your oils a little bit okay. because if you use them straight out of the tube, it will not dry. So always thin a little bit, but gotcha. not too much. Gotcha. And the, the, the most important thing is to use really good oil paints. Like mm -hmm. uh, I use uh, Old Holland and sometimes Windsor and Newton. And that's it. Uh, uh, if you, for example, compare two tubes, one uh, Old Holland and Rembrandt, if you put them on, on, a, on a glass plate, I mix my, my oils on a glass plate, then the, the Rembrandt, you only have oil. And I know that, that a lot of um, uh, modelers, they take a, a little cardboard yeah. 
and then they let it dry for, for, for one night. But for me, it sounds stupid because you throw away a bit of your money because if you buy paint that is less oil and more pigment, you don't need to do that. Yeah. So at the end, if you for the best example is Rembrandt, it has so much oil in, and if you don't need this oil, you throw it away on on your little cardboard. So <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's very important if you paint figures that you have a, a really good uh, quality of paint. My figures also don't shine. And I don't do anything for that. It's just the brand that that helps me with that. So, so Genghis Khan doesn't have a uh, like a, a flat coat on it at the end. No, no, no. Oh wow! Okay. No, no, no. Bad will. If you if you if you use something on top of the paint, typical aircraft you... model. <laughs> yes. Well, I, it's the but it's the natural assumption because because you're you know most of us do most model makers are gonna are gonna go on there with some you know with some uh, dull coat or some GX one thirteen or whatever. So this is good. Yeah. These are these are the details that matter. The thing is with oil paint though, if you put it on really oily and it's an oily paint when you put it on. It won't matter if you put a flat coat on it because it that oil will leach through the flat coat unless yep. it's a real hard barrier. So yeah. you're better off making it not oily before you put it on. Yeah, yeah. And if you put something on top of it, you lose a lot of uh, the 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 depth of the. I mean, for mm. a face or something, you lose a lot of of the contrast if you put a, a varnish on top of it. Then a lot of the contrast is gone. So that's my uh, experience also. I tried it, but uh, you lose a lot of the contrast, and that's a pity. So if you have good oil paint, you don't need, you don't need that. It dries really fast. I mean, if you, the next day you can go on. Because you're, you're, you're applying it fairly thin. It's not, it's not an impasto yeah. application, so no, 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 it no. does dry quickly. But I, yeah. I, I did have a question just to clarify something a little bit. Whenever we were talking about the the blue of the uh, uh, the coat on Genghis Khan, so you're mixing up your on your palette your medium tone, your light, and your dark, mm-hmm. and then you're applying those exactly where they go, right? So, a, a, uh, well, a rough, I make sketch. Uh huh. So I sketch where the dark. And then, uh, sketch and the midtone, uh, and then and then you start to bring it together. Right. So you'll apply your darker version of that blue into the shadows. And you'll apply your mm-hmm. highlight on top, and then you go back with your your uh, dry brush and and you blend those together to get a smoother transition. Yeah. Okay. And you you always blend in the direction. I mean, sometimes I only do two colors. It, it, mm-hmm. For people who want to start, it's easier to start with, with, with the two, the dark and the mid-tone. And um, if you blend the shadow color, the dark color, then you have to blend in the direction of the dark color. Into the shadow. Into yeah. the shadow. And if you blend the, to the light, if you blend the light color, you blend... You, you're blending the, the, the highlight yeah. out. Yeah, so it, it it depends also a little bit on what you're blending. 
mm. and in the direction. Yeah. You can do two colors. You can start with the mid-tone and add some in the shadow. And then when you blend, when you have blended that, you can also add a little bit on top of the, of the highlight. And then you do the highlight. So you don't have to do it all three in one. You can you can do that if you have a lot of experience, but most of the time I do the mid-tone and the shadow and then I put a dot of light color on the highlight uh, part and then I start to blend that in the in the mid-tone. Hmm. So, so do you so do you do you do everything with the mid-tone and then come back and add the 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 shadows and the highlights or do you do each of the three tones separately? You can do it uh, first, especially with red. Red is really difficult. You can put a layer in mid-tone. And then you wait a little while, get a coffee or don't wait. And then <laughs> if the mid-tone is, is, is okay for you on the whole piece, then you can start to add the, the shadow color and the, the light color. And you blend these two colors into the mid-tone. But of course, not too much because otherwise you have no mid-tone anymore. Mm. But you can, the easiest part is to do it um, uh, first a layer of mid-tone and then start to make the, the deeper shadow and the highlight on top. So that's the most easy part. And some people who are really, really, really experienced more than me, they can do it all in one. That's, but for me, it's also easier to start with the midtone. Gotcha. Yeah. These are these. This is great detail because, you know, my own limited figure painting experience is it, so much of it just comes down to the consistency of your materials, and those subtle things that, like you were talking about, blending into the shadow and out of the highlight. Mm. That's a real subtle point of technique that like mm -hmm. i never even thought about that um, that's a that's a little bit of a mind-blowing concept that i'm sure that a lot of people listening to this who want to improve their figure painting are taking notes right now <laughs> yeah i hope so i hope so because it's it's all a matter of practicing 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 and 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 don't don't give up and i mean my i think my first 10 figures I painted at least two times. So clean them up completely and start again. So it's all about practice, practice. And not everything has to be, actually nothing has to be for a competition. And that that is the biggest issue, I think, in the figure painting scene. That people think they have to paint for a competition. It's quite and a competitive a scene, isn't it? Yes. And a competition, you put your figure maybe one or two or maybe three times in a competition. And for the rest of the year, the, the figure is in your cabinet. You have to look at it every day. And and I, I, I stopped about two years ago to, to paint for competition because... Of course, there were no competitions to, <laughs> since two years, but I mean, so, so a little bit longer ago, I, I stopped painting with the idea in my head that I needed to paint what I think that other people want to see in my figure. Does it make sense what I say now? It 
makes a lot of sense to me because I reached the same point at art college that I was in the end of the second year, beginning of my final year at college. And I was worried that tutors never seem to like my work and what did I need to do to make it so they'd like it and in the end I thought you can't really even if you ask someone what they want you can't ever really know what they're going to like so you're chasing after something that really doesn't exist and you'll never understand so the only person you can please is yourself yes because it's a it's a crazy it's like a dog chasing its tail to try and uh, yes try and make something the judges will like you know yeah and also, you can't develop that way because you, you're not on your own journey. No, it's true. It's so completely true. And and, and judges, every time, different. And mm. and what I always say, it, if, if, if you put your figure in the competition, it depends on the taste, mood from two or three people on a certain moment in in their life, on a certain light. on I mean, there is so much... I mean, not that judges are not uh, professional. They are professional, but sometimes the light is completely different than when you paint it on your own yeah. desk. And then in, a, in another light, it looks maybe different. And then you worked on something that you are not happy with. So the best thing is... And for me, I, I experience this by myself also for having fun is just do what you like and and just paint the colors that you like. Sometimes I had a period in the beginning of the, the COVID uh, that I used so bright colors, so many colors. It was all colorful because I needed color in my life, I think. I don't know why I did it, but just paint what you like. And what you want to see every day when you come at your desk. So, and I think then you start to paint better and better and better. I think uh, you've judged at competitions as well, though. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a mystery to me what judges look for or model. I mean, I'm not saying, (laughs) I'm not saying... (laughs) Don't paint to what they want, but tell us what they want. What I mean is, uh, <laughs> what are your criteria? What are you, when you're looking at figure uh, figures, what are you looking at? What is it you're assessing? Uh, first of all, when um, when i judging, of course, figures, because something else I cannot judge. Um, and especially when it's a bust, I look first to the face and to the eyes. I mean, the eyes have to be straight and well painted and and the face is very important at the bust and after that i look if the volumes are correct i never judge on colors but there must be volumes if if you have a sleeve and there's no volume or painted or it's on the wrong place it's not so it doesn't look so good but overall, it's about how how clean how clean is your work. I mean, that's for me the most important, of, not the most important, the face, the eyes, the volumes, and if it is it clean. I mean, I don't judge on a certain style. I can judge different styles. Of course, maybe 
some people have problems with one or other style. I always try because I'm, I'm Facebook is my window to the world because I'm always at home. And I see a lot of fantasy and fantasy is uh, difficult to judge because there are so many styles and people always try to do new things. But if you see them a lot, many times on Facebook or whatever, you can actually judge it on the same way as you do uh, historical. But the problem is that some people who are judging fantasy have more eye for the non-metal, the NMM, the xenatolite, all these fun things that uh, are on the... Uh, on fantasy, of course, if they paint it more, they have maybe a better eye on it. But I, I think I can judge it also. But but fantasy is so much more difficult than painting historical. Because every time there's a new... How do you say it? Not, not, not fashion, but a new... Technique? Technique. Mm, I, mean, no. I mean, they... they they keep inventing new things and trying and, and new styles. And then uh, the problem is that everybody wants to copy that style. <laughs> but yeah, not always. It, in, 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 yeah. It's a bit like and, uh, uh, Paris or Milan. You know, what's this season's thing? When you go to a show and like everyone's got the same technique and then exactly. next year a different technique. And then, yeah. 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 Well, it's uh, really easy to see right now that the, that the style with fantasy is these super saturated and really brilliant colors. You know, you see. Yes. Oh, not not always. It can also be very desaturated, but uh, the techniques are. I mean, painting fantasy is more difficult than some people think. Painting historical is, you know what you paint, you know what this figure needs, mm -hmm. yeah. and of course you your technique can be better, and you can try some from the fantasy style to the to the historical, like for example, tech painting texture or something like that. But the real the real fantasy, like Fabrizio Rusto, or I mean, a lot of names they have so the light and 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 it's 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 crazy what they are doing i mean it's it's not just painting a fantasy figure but it's 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 amazing well i think it's kind of analogous to scale modeling where you have you know the guys who are doing vehicles ordnance you know airplanes tanks cars they're just more comfortable with that than they are with science fiction subjects yeah. because you know, with the sci-fi stuff, you might have a movie you can look at and see something to give you a reference, but it's still kind of out there in creative freedom land, and that, frankly, makes a lot of model makers really uncomfortable. Yeah. I think as well, that's where you need a good eye for color, because yeah. with historical or with real subjects, you could just rely on what they actually are. But with mm -hmm. fantasy, when you're choosing your palette for mm -hmm. that project, you need to really know a bit about color to be able to choose yeah. one that works and 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 also um if you paint now i'm i'm talking about me if i paint a fantasy figure i need to 
make a concept. I need to think about. I need to know before I start where I will go, what I want to achieve, and and make my own idea behind this figure. I want to have it in this kind of color, or and, and if if I paint yeah, I if this. I paint something like this, I start with an idea of the colors, and yes. Sorry, Margot, for for the listeners, uh, what's this one this called? This is... Uh, 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 um, let me see. I forget all the names for my own figures. This is uh, Genesis. Genesis from Contreras, Michael Contreras. Hmm. And, yeah, so this is the, the lady with blue skin and yeah. one red stocking. Yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and then... In this, because I used here uh, on this also again uh, more, um, uh, I used the airbrush and uh, after that oil. And you can see um, on the legs that some of the color from the stocking is reflecting on the leg. And that is something that, that people in uh, use a lot when they paint fantasy. The, the reflection of some colors to another part of the figure. And that is something that I learned, and for the first time I used it on this figure also. So it's 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 very uh, it's another way of thinking when you paint. When I paint the uh, Genghis Khan or now the the post-military samurai, you don't need to think; you only need to paint. So for relaxing, for me personal. Uh, historical is more relaxing and then fantasy is more uh, creative and more challenging and and so but once in a while I need to have a breakdown <laughs> I want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but I started with uh, historical so it's not so so strange that I'm now doing historical not everybody knows that so people why are you going to historical well i started with historical so <laughs> i can i can so totally relate to what you're saying because again i'm a very beginner figure painter but i have a couple of uh of world war ii fighter pilot busts and those conceptually are easy for me because you know it's a brown leather jacket it's a it's a brown leather helmet it's a white goggle strap and flesh you know whatever colors you need it's easy to see that in your yes. head it's not it's it's not a creative stretch and then i have a couple of science fiction busts that could be yeah. anything and, and and i i i had a headache for like a month trying to decide what's the color composition that i want to use here and it, it it doesn't just like for me i need to have a path forward like where i can see that in my mind but the discomfort doesn't stop even after I'm finished with it because there's always that angst of, did I really make the best choices? And I and I know that makes a lot of model makers really yeah. uncomfortable. But it's, it's I think every figure painter, when the figure is finished, he's not completely happy with it, and you put it in the cabinet and take a look after two weeks or so, and then it's like, oh my god. It's not so bad at all. So it's sometimes you take you look too long on a figure and then you don't see the good things anymore. But a good idea for 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 fantasy um, is um, 
what I do is going to um, uh, how's that site? Oh my god, I'm old. Uh, Art station. Uh, Pinterest. Pin. Oh. Pinterest. Okay. Yeah. And then I start to look, and you can click and click and click, and I make a map. You can go to me on Pinterest, and you see all the maps from all my fantasy uh, figures. And I put everything in a map. In the beginning, I printed it out, make a mood board, not to copy it, but I put it in front of me, and then I I had the 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 the, the colors and the, the ideas were always in front of me and that makes it easier to stick to the plan i mean in in art they make a lot of mood boards because you 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 probably know that too mm. and it's 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 good yeah it's, it's good too, to yeah. to make a mood board if if you start with fantasy and later on i only take some time and then i don't need to print it out because cost lots of ink <laughs> to print it out <laughs> i can buy paint for that but that's that's a good tip for people who start with uh, fantasy painting so another one that i mentioned it that these guys aren't don't like it much but i love art station and it's one that i found uh, on recommendation from mike rinaldi oh and it's all digital art you know, so people do in 3D modeling, but it covers the entire range of stuff from from game fan art to movie fan art to military vehicles. I mean, science fiction, everything you can think of is in there. And sometimes it's fun to just sit there and surf for an hour yeah. and just get get inspiration for colors and yeah. different looks and things like that. Well, if Mike said it, it must be good. <laughs> ah, he's a good uh, painter too. So he he's is, all right. He is, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and 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 judging, yeah, it's 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 difficult to explain how there are some rules and IPMS, for example. I talked with Robert because they have a list. And then you need to give points to a certain kind of things. Mm-hmm. Does it have this? Does it have that? Does it? Have... For me, I like. I don't like that because um, I know there was in, in in motion. There was a guy and he built a great great ship uh, submarine. And on the list is was there a flag on the ship? But the submarine came on top. So you cannot have a, a flag when the submarine is coming up. And these five points was the difference between a gold and a silver. So it's very tricky if you start to judge with lists. Because not every I mean ship or every figure or has the same needs the same things. Now they are quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just remembering uh, judging at Mosin. It was a very, uh, very technical uh, and very precise judging process, you know, and it really was. I mean, we had these great big sheets and it, it wasn't quite like IPMS, but I do remember they were tough. Yeah. You know, the, the judging at Mosin. Yeah, especially tough. the master category for for mm. model, modeling, uh, yeah, not but... for... for, for uh, 
not for figure. That's different because uh, one. Yeah, I mean, I can't talk about figures, but certainly, yeah, for, yeah. for modeling. Yeah. yeah. We've been having a lot of conversations lately about the whole IPMS thing and the judging thing. Like, I just got back from my first IPMS show. And, you know, it's understandable why those guys want to try and make it objective. You know, they want to have like a measuring stick that you can objectively look at and say, okay, this is a flaw mm-hmm. according to mm-hmm. the scale. And uh, I, I know that with stuff like figures, there's there's probably a lot of things. Like you were talking about the eyes, you know, are they straight? Do they point the same direction? Um, you know, is the are the color separations tight? Like you talked about it being clean, and I think that probably equates to what I always call tight tightness. Like the color separations are are sharp. Mm. It's just you know, it's just it's just crisp. But yeah, beyond that, how do you how do you even evaluate uh, something like that, and even begin to make it an objective comparison? I I just yeah, I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's. Um... Like, uh, you judge most of the time with three persons. And in especially in, in, in uh, maybe in everything, but especially in the fantasy, you cannot compare one figure to another. Because they can be painted completely different. The last time I remember there was one figure, and it was co- more painted in my style. I call it always the clean style. So fantasy painted, but in the style of of historical. I was. It's it's a clean style. It's not with all these difficult things with the senator light or. And the other one was completely different. Was completely with all the new styles, everything. So it's it's impossible to compare because they both had uh, what I now remember a gold medal, and we talked about it and. The guy, and then I said to the, the my my buddies, I said this is gold. I I agree, but this one is completely different painted. But take a good look. It's it's perfect painted. The eyes, the colors, the blending, the the whole shit was completely gold. And then you have two fi- two figures, so different, but still both deserve the gold medal. And that's. The difficulty if you judge uh, figures for historical it's more easy because you don't judge if it has the really right queen or I mean discussing uh, about colors is stupid but uh, <laughs> I mean we agree yes I know I heard it before but in fantasy, you can have two completely, completely different painted figures, and both are actually gold. And and that's why it's so hard and exhausting. Well, it, it really makes the case for the gold, silver, bronze open system. like Because how could you even begin to decide, okay, this one's going to be first, this one's going to be second? I, I just I don't know how you could do anything but the open system for a figure competition. I have no idea. It's, I think it's the best way. I mean, I don't know anything else. I'm a young blood. I mean, I'm I'm only <laughs> I'm only eight years in the in the hobby. So I, uh, I and I never want to be a judge. I never want to be a judge. And then Pietro Baloni from Pegaso, 
He said to me, you have to judge. I said, no, I don't want. He said, you have to. And I said, why? He said, you have the opportunity to take the figure in your hands and you can learn from it. So not for giving the medals and not for saying, I'm a judge. No, you have to do it for yourself, he said. It's kind of a selfish thing because you get so much out yeah. of doing it. And then the first time I did, I, I give uh, a guy with a great name in Italy and he had nothing. And he asked me, how was it? And, and, and he said, and I said, what was your display? And then I said, what the fuck? I said, oh, no, I will never judge again. I never judge again. And I, I, I couldn't sleep because, but it was my honest opinion. So, and this guy said, don't worry, don't worry. And uh, I said, yeah, Pietro told me that I need to judge. And now, so, yeah, my first experience was not the best one. But. Well, that proves that you judge the work, not the name. Yes. Right? Yeah, and now, for sure. That's something that, that I need. That is the most important thing. I, because a, lo a lot of times, if you go to so many shows and, and on Facebook, you know from who this figure is. Not always. Yeah. But most of the time, you know it. And then you also have to have the guts to say, no, this is, this is, this is not his best work. And, and sometimes people get really mad because then, ah, last year I had a, a gold or a platinum and now I have nothing. And you cannot compare what you paint last year and what you have now. Yeah, that's sometimes a tough thing. But also you can't. Like you were kind of saying earlier, with with painting for yourself, not for competitions, you can't invest too much in competitions. That you know, like you said as well, they look for different things. I've had it where you take a piece to one show and it does really well. You take it to another show and it gets nothing. Yeah, yeah. And you just when that happens, you've just kind of got to say competitions are fun, and I'll still enter them, but you can't take the results too seriously. No, no. Especially for beginners, is it uh, really hard? Mm. When they go to a competition that is smaller, uh, have not so m many entries or whatever, and then they get maybe a bronze or silver or whatever. And then they go to a bigger competition with more people that already have painted a longer time or whatever. And still also beginners, but it, it can happen that in the eye of the judge, you don't have that bronze or... And the problem is, in, in one thing I want to say about judging also is that when I judge, I don't want to judge when they say you can only give three goals or you can only give one gold. And then I, then I don't judge. I mean, at SMC, everybody who honestly deserves a medal gets a medal. No matter how much it... I mean, medals cost money, but... Stricting the number of medals is for me and not done. It's, I mean, you then you then you have the problem from comparing what we talked about before. How can you compare? And then you need to compare uh, in the three goals. I I need to choose between three goals. One that get the medal, and the other two goals get nothing. Because if I give them silver, then the silver category is too big. And then, I mean, you make your decision. And then choosing between 
three goal, uh, three goals, and you can only give one medal. It's it's for me not done. You're not judging a model on its own merits, then. You're judging it against other yeah models. So yeah, you, you might as well be doing first, second, third. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, and that's that's also impossible. But that's that's for me very important when I judge that there's no. I mean, no limit on medals is, of course, that's stupid. But people pay people pay for entering the competition, and shows need that money for organizing the show. But at least give everybody who does it. And if the medal is too expensive that you want to give, then buy a cheaper medal. <laughs> By cheaper medal, people don't care as long as they can say, "I got my medal," and 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 that that's that's something that you could probably give them a certificate. It's winning it that matters. It's not the little bit of resin that you yeah. get for doing es- it, especially yeah. when it's at a at a contest that's got a lot of prestige. Yes, mm. I mean there are competitions that 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 j- normally when you have open, you have a display, you judge the best of the display. You only judge one figure at the best of the display. Sometimes they do the, the other way around to make the competition harder. They judge the worst of the display. Mm, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you better up your game. <laughs> then the competition looks much harder. But actually, it's it's unfair. I know it's since short, and I don't talk about who, what, when, what, where, but it's something i cannot understand be honest if you want to be a good show then be honest and give everybody his thing that he deserves people pay for this people travel for coming to your show people spend a lot of money to come there to to be there to to be part of it so be a good guest give people Mm. what they come for for us, it's like people visited friends who visiting our home. You know, it's it's. If you want to have a good show, then be a good ga- uh, guest. No, not guest. Good host. Good host. 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 Good host. Yeah. I good told host. you, Chris. My yeah. English is not. Good. Be a good host. <laughs> oh, 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 one word stumble. <laughs> I'd be more than that in, the, in a sentence. <laughs> be a good host. It just really boils down to the idea that the show experience is a product. And as the host, you're delivering a product to your customers. I mean, I think that's probably why why you guys have succeeded so well with SMC, because you see it, you know, you look at it that way. And others, yeah, yeah not so much. Yeah. For us, it's the most important thing, that people feel comfortable, feel welcome, feel happy, have fun. I mean, that's the most important thing. Well, you you put the value on on the on the the entrance experience rather than the people, the value being for the people who are hosting it. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah, and yeah. and I think there's there's people listening who are going to say, "Well, you know, that's why I don't compete." But look, there are people who just love to compete. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's you know horses or motorcycles or models or whatever there are just people who love to compete and the show is is the product that they buy and they invest a tremendous amount of yes. their energy into that but the fact that i say 
that I'm not painting for competition is not the same that I don't enter competition. I will enter competition as long as I live. Very important distinction. But but you don't paint to win. Yes. So it's well, it, I don't paint for competition, but I will enter the competition because I, I mean, it's like having friends. If you want that your friends coming to you, you also have to go to your friends, and that's what Robert and I do with our traveling, going and support shows in Italy, in in whatever, and putting my figures in the competition. Of course, it's a it's a ego. I put my figures in the competition, but also to support the show. And I will always put my figures in the competition. Also, if I don't have anything, but it's fun. And and people can see what I'm doing. So, and of course, when I win a good medal, I'm quite happy. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. No, it's not bad. <laughs> not bad at all. So it's, 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 it's two different things. Not painting for a competition and not entering a competition. I just, I love hearing you talk about that because again, just coming off of my first show experience, um, you know, it's, it seems pretty clear, like with the IPMS thing, that there are certain style preferences in, in play. So you have a decision to make. Are you, are you going to try to, you know, build or paint to the formula uh, and try to, try to win based on the style preference that you know is at play? Or are you going to just do whatever you want to do and just enjoy the experience? Um, and it, I mean, it's a it's a it's a thing. It's a very much a fundamental part of of these uh, competition communities, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's the same for figures and for plastic modeling. Uh, I think there's no difference uh, uh, about this. That that some shows or some judges prefer this or that or. I mean, it's it's the same. Well, we're human. We're human. We have, yeah. you know, we like we like what we like. We can't help that. But the challenge is, like you said, to judge independently of your personal preferences. And that's the most difficult thing because it's something that's so in you. It's something that makes you you. And then you need to try not to do that. But everybody has, when, when you walk, on a competition you see and you said wow and then as a judge you have the same but then you have need to try to make the click and it's not easy and i i don't know if i will judge more now because i'm you know last time i judged five hours Mm. and it's so difficult to get judges so we were three judges and we have to judge. The, at, they asked me at the last moment, but I was in competition. And then the, 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 the head of uh, judge, Fabio Nunari, he said, don't worry, I will judge your display. Don't, don't worry. Because with three people, we have to judge from uh, all the fantasy, from the beginners, from... I mean, it was unbelievable, so much. And... Then you judge for five hours, and then there was a bug in the system, and then the next day you have to judge again. I mean, it's not everything, but a lot of things. So, oh my God, I was completely 
fed up and and with my health and with my energy level it's i think it it was my last time for judging it's a shit job <laughs> i don't think people appreciate that i mean it's something that actually open system judges and ipms judges have in common because i've heard ipms guys say it if you're judging you're not going to get to enjoy the show like everyone else does because you're going to be in that judging room yeah i mean at smc it might be for eight hours yeah. <laughs> no not eight maybe but a lot of hours judging models yeah and it's uh you know while everyone else is up in the bar enjoying themselves yeah. you're still there giving every model the attention it deserves and really looking closely yeah. at it and really yeah you know looking at it carefully and we tried to, it, to, to know, get a lot of charges yeah we try to get as much as possible uh, judges because otherwise it's like like the last time in Italy one guy has to judge in his own the the the, the sci-fi the, the 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 big names also want to go for competition it's more than before and the reason is that they need to earn the money and uh, it's getting harder and harder because the scene is getting bigger and bigger. Everybody wants to make a job of his hobby. And so the, the, the ones that judged before, the pro, the professionals that judged before and they hadn't, uh, they didn't need to go to every competition because they had a lot of work. Since a couple of years, it's, it's different. So they also want to enter the competition. So it's getting more and more difficult to find good judges and, and, and enough judges, especially enough. So it's uh, yeah something Robert and I talk also a lot about. So I want to ask you about your style, Margot, because, uh, you know, like I, I, I'm, I am, a, like I said many times, I'm a very beginner figure painter, but... I'm an avid figure painting observer. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I just love looking at the work of, of all the talented painters out there. And I see some very common things. You know, there are some formulas that a lot of figure painters seem to repeat over and over again. And then I look at your work and I feel like you have a distinct style. And, I, and, and, and even aside from the fact that I just really like your style. Thank um, you it's it's different and, and i think that it's just like a lot of things with model making it's hard to do photography it's hard to do finding a unique style is really one of the most difficult things and i'm curious how you kind of define your style and how you arrived there i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea i i i just did what I what I love to do and how I like to to see my figure so I I I really have no answer I did not do anything I didn't do anything to achieve a certain style so would do you feel like um, you know you were talking about Pinterest earlier and gathering a mood board yeah yeah I feel like when I'm when I look at your work, I see the work of painters, you know, paint on canvas. I see. Absolutely. It's um, a very painterly style. Uh, really? It is. <laughs> but also, yeah. But I also see um, the product of 
all the things that you're attracted to, whether it's the colors used in a brochure or an ad, um, the, the colors of someone's, that someone chooses for a, a home interior or something and the furniture that goes with it. I, I mean, I, I assume that like many of us, your style is a distillation of all the things that you're attracted to uh, visually and, and yeah. you somehow sort of, I think that's another way that, that people who are really observant have a good color sense is because they're observing what appeals to them and what appeals to them is probably very harmonious. And Yeah. I, I think it's also depending on my, uh, on my mood. Like I said, in the beginning of the, of the pandemic, I painted a lot of my, my fantasy figures with so much bright colors. And that's, that's something I, it's, it comes out of me i don't know it's 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 not something that i think about also my style is not something that i think about it's something that just comes out of me and maybe out of my situation or mood or whatever but it's not something i never think about that when you say this guys i i, I say thank you but i don't know <laughs> where it comes from it's just it comes from inside it makes sense because I, I mean, I, I can imagine that as you're working, you know, you're thinking, okay, I want a little more contrast here. I want a little less contrast over there. Oh, I think this blue needs to be a little, have a little more red in it. And, and, and those minute decisions that we make, and we talked with Lester Plaskett about this in our last show, those minute decisions are what end up, you know, the accumulating and defining your style, but they're pretty difficult to articulate. Yeah. And and one thing I I I I, I do and um what I think that's very important if you paint a figure, you you concentrate so long on uh, with the optimizer and but now and then you have to look from a distance and then you see oh oh I need more this or more that. And that's something I learned at Art Academy, uh, looking from a distance. Uh, e even there, we, we learned to take a picture and then look on the picture. And so, so sometimes I take a picture and then with my cell phone or what Robert is doing, he's going to the, to the, the bathroom and put it in front of the mirror. So sometimes you need to look with, to your figure with another eye and that can be of course look from a distance don't focus hours and hours just on small things or make a picture with your cell phone and then you see what you can't see if you are painting so that's some tricks that i use but my style i don't know it's it's my style <laughs> i don't Tracy, was it you that said before, turn it upside down or something else you can do? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you turn it upside down. The mirror is a great one because your brain is focused on what you're seeing in front of you. And then when you put it in a mirror and everything's reversed, your brain can't really comprehend what it's seeing, but it, mm -hmm. it will immediately see what's wrong. Yeah. It, you, your eye is immediately drawn to what's not working. Yeah, um, yeah. And the same with... Uh, what I would do sometimes, especially when I was painting, is go uh, put the painting somewhere where you can see it from a different room or from outside 
and then yeah. step outside and look at it and see how it looks from a completely strange and different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was yeah. just going to go on about your style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what my style is. It's 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 me. It's it's well, what I like. Well, for whatever it's worth, I, I so I I, I want to try to articulate it because it helps me in the way that I think about these things. Like when I'm looking at your Genghis Khan figure, it's just got a very balanced um, I mean, the colors are rich and bold, but they're very balanced. Like there's nothing that, that to me is gratuitous that says, hey, look at me. I'm a bright color just so you'll notice me. And and it really matches the style of my favorite photographers. Like um, if you ever look at the work of Steve McCurry, his portraits, and, and he does a lot of portraits in Asia. It, it's a very similar thing where it just to me, it's like it's like comforting when I look at yeah. it. It just makes me like everywhere I look, I get that sense of comfort visually, and there's nothing that makes my eye twitch and and you know makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And you like, and I think you see a lot of of painters' style show up in the faces, and and I think with figure painting in particular, because there is sort of this formula that you get when you look at the step by step tutorials you know, use these particular tones. And I think it's real easy for beginning figure painters to get locked into that because like, you know, if you buy the, if you buy Vallejo, you've got the sort of list of colors that's prescribed for you. And yeah. so a, a lot of work ends up looking the same, but like when I look at the faces of this, uh, of this little kid that's got, I think, a uh, uh, like a little some kind of little animal in the hood of his of his jacket, and uh, this lady with this oh, skull, yeah. skull, like like your 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 facial uh, tones. Yeah, he are, was funny. Yeah, he's 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 <laughs> great. I was talking. Like, I was talking with this guy when I painted him. I and, can see it. I can see yeah. it. And and uh, that was so funny. We had a connection. Did the guy annoy you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, "Come here, you. Come here, you little guy. I'm gonna make you pretty." <laughs> yeah. Well, there's 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 emotion there, which is a hard thing to capture when with figure painting. That in and of itself is an accomplishment. But I just love the fact that, like, to me, your skin tones are 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 realistic, and yet they're rich and colorful. Again, there's nothing there that that that's gratuitous. That's just like trying to grab your attention, and I think it's I think it's yeah. a wonderful style. I I hope I can figure out how to do it myself someday. It's not, all these all these figures are painted. All the skin tones are always painted with oil. Also, when I painted with acrylic, skin tone is always with oil. And actually, there's a. Um, uh, uh, a very very easy recipe for painting skin tone and you need four colors you need a white a red uh yellow ochre and a little bit of uh cobalt blue and with these four colors you can mix beautiful skin tones and uh for some skin tones, uh, you do a little bit more of the uh, the ochre in it, or the base. The basic is the same. It's it's 
they are all started with the same four colors. And then at the end you can, for example, a little bit uh, uh, um, burnt sienna. With this guy, maybe I do the cheeks with burnt sienna, a little glaze with burnt sienna. But the, the main colors that I use always in every figure are the same. It's the four colors. And then you can play with these colors. Once you start to mix, learn to mix them, you can mix all these skin tones. That's the key thing. Learn, learn to mix those tones. Well, learning to mix with oils is, is difficult. <laughs> Not for you. <laughs> no, uh, uh, mixing, mixing with acrylic, that's difficult for me. So it, it's... And, and a friend of mine, Dimitri, in, uh, in Moscow, when I was uh, visiting him at his home, he, uh, we painted a day with oil together. And, and he said, the most important thing before you start to paint is making your colors on your palette. And sometimes it takes, even though I use the same four colors, it's not always easy to, to, to reach the, 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 the good color. So sometimes I, I, I do it in, in five minutes and sometimes I need a half hour. And then once I have the good color, then you can paint. Do you find that it becomes kind of a muscle memory thing and maybe a visual memory thing? Visual. The more you do it, the more you do it, the better you get. Yeah, but it's not always that that I do it like one dot of this. People ask, how much do you use from this? Or you hear a lot of questions when there are uh, demos or something like that. That people say, how much of this color do you use and how much of that? And you cannot explain that. Whatever, you use a little bit more of this and then you keep you keep mixing. And and on a certain point, you have the right color. I have trouble with this. It's not a conscious thing, is it? You, you know, your brain's doing it faster than you're thinking about it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's just a sort of instinctive thing to to add a bit more of this, a little bit yeah. more of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can nurture it, but it takes practice and experience. Yeah. And we we're playing with color a lot before you start to get to. Good and it's totally understandable that people want recipes. I mean, that's right. That's the easiest thing if you can yeah. just rattle off a formula but you know what size dot then I mean, you they, never get an own style right, right. exactly and, and it's the culmination of your continuous processing what is your particular size dot and how much mixing do you do and the light that you work in and all those things that are going to determine what your particular style of say flesh tone for example happens to be Will's pet hate. What is the consistency of milk? Exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. that's the, yeah. Whole yeah milk? You may, skin milk? You may not know this, Margo, but that's a thing in scale modeling is, you know, you'll get some guy who will go, some beginner who will say, hey, oh, figure, figure hey, how do I mix my paint for airbrushing? And somebody will say, oh, you just want it to be the consistency of milk. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm Buttermilk? like pounding the keys. Yeah. What kind yeah. of milk? <laughs> yeah, what kind of milk? Yeah, uh, but yeah. but you know, I'm 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 still in a learning process. I'm I'm not finished. I mean, every figure that I paint, I I I, I make step forward. 
So you never you never finished in learning. As long as you live, you learn from life. But also as long as you paint, you learn. So uh, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> it can it can be better. So that's what I keep in mind. It's a journey. Yeah, it's a journey. Just like everything in life, it's a journey. And and like like I said. Uh, uh, painting gives me back my my life so uh, I don't know what uh, how I would be without my painting I mean I start to travel I met so many people uh, I mean uh, my life was not easy uh, uh, n not when I was young there was uh, some abuse some un un unsafe uh, area in my life in in a lot of not only me but a lot of people in the village so that was a start and I was very insecure when I was young uh, I had a teacher who, who uh, uh, abused me bumped me with my head to the to the how do you say school board a uh, lot of things there were a lot of things happening at that time and and it was not it has nothing to do with my my uh my family because my parents were great parents um but it some things happened just overcome to me and also because of that i i i looked at a at a wrong guy and i married with him and that was a disaster so it's getting worse and I had my two children and unfortunately the uh, the oldest one my daughter um, when she was about 16 years now earlier 14 I noticed something was really wrong really wrong and it's getting worse and worse and she has a borderline personality disorder in a very 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 heavy way and I had a great son, and unfortunately, I lost my son uh, about 13 years ago now on cancer. Before that, I already, because of my the problems with my daughter, I had a huge burnout. And I had a physical problem. They call it fibromyalgia, but it's related to people who have a lot of stress in their life. So, um, and at a certain point I couldn't walk when we go out for shopping, I was in a wheelchair and, uh, so it keeps going and going and going and going. And, uh, one point, uh, my, uh, psychiatrist said to me, we, we tried with medicines and I developed, developed, a, a chronic depression. I always say to people. I have a chronic depression, but I'm not all, but I'm not chronic depressed. I mean, I have the good medicines and, uh, but of course, uh, on a certain moment when I lost my son, I didn't know what to do. And, and for five years, I, I buried my grief in, in, the, in building a, a garden from 1000 square meter. And, um, after that, I start to paint. And people 
treated me with so much kindness and people were happy to see me and I I it's like I I popped up from everything and and Robert saw me growing up and he said to me oh there was a show and if you want to go 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 and I travel I was three times in Moscow and and I mean all these young people were all so kind to me and it every time when I come back from a trip physically um totally a mess but mentally um like I I I have energy again so so that's why I always say uh figure painting give me back my my life and of course I have five grandchildren and I love them a lot and I mean we have good contact I have good contact with the widow of my son and also with her new husband and everything is but feeling part of a community and people seeing me they like to see me and and you know that that's for me so important and and, and when i have a bad day uh i go and sit here at my bench and i start to paint and with every brush stroke all the troubles leave me and I can think more uh, realistic to if is is it a problem or can I do something or is it just a, a, a mood? So, yeah, figure painting is is I keep figure painting as long as I can see it and I have my medicine, so I I I am pretty under control. So that's that's. That's for me a good thing. And I have them now for years. And every evening, like somebody who has diabetic or whatever, I take my two pills and that's it. I make, I don't make a problem of my medicines because somebody who has something at his heart, he also needs a medicine. And for me, it's in my brain and it needs a medicine. So, and I think I, I, hear the the podcast with chris clayton and i listen often to you guys and it's good that we are open in in also in the hobby because i'm sure and i know i know a couple of people also when i was in poland i i talked to a guy and and he started to talk i talked and then his friend said does it ring a bell and then you know, we start to talk about it, and 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 he he's the, the age of my 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 children, and and but we still feel like friends because to understand each other, and and that's what we need more and more in the community, I think, because it's 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 not strange to have mental problems. It's also not strange to to have a broken leg, so or to have diabetic or to have a heart problem or failing kidneys it's not strange so why should it be strange to have a mental problem i think it's all in the body and the community is really we the commonality with that is that i think almost anyone turns to the hobby for escape 
and to to yeah. to recharge their batteries and feel joy and and sometimes yeah. frustration, but but you're pushing yourself on something that you want to do, um, and it makes you feel good. It makes you yeah. It, it lets you step away from the problems that you have and just yeah. enjoy enjoy something else. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 pretty common for people. So the yeah. more we talk about it, the more the more other people understand. Oh, they feel that way too. They this yeah. is something that they also do. So. I was just going to say, it's very much, you know, you, you, you were questioning, you know, the whole thing about broken legs or whatever, or just having a sore throat as compared to mental health. And it's really, it's just such an ego thing. You know, people like, you know, if you're a dude and you break your arm, well, there's a story behind that, you know, mm-hmm. you can be a man and you broke your arm and, and it's cool. I mean, as a ex motocross guy, I, I have, you know, I, I can yeah. relate to that. Yeah. Um, but people have this idea that if it's in between your ears, it means there's something wrong with you. And we really have to let go of that and mm-hmm. just normalize the idea that everybody's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and chances are that. That shit that you're feeling, there's plenty of other people who can totally relate to that. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just a thing. It's part of being human. Yeah. But it's, it's I mean, where I come from in my age, uh, for the abuse, for example, um, the whole village knew it. And, I mean, I was I was a victim, but not a, a, a hard victim because I... I I fought for myself, so I, I I took a distance. But a lot of them had more problems, and it's it's something I even not in ten podcasts I can explain how hard it was. But that's the start, and then something you always feel uncomfortable. You feel like you have to be careful, and it starts to grow, and then some other things come, and other things come. But in my time, you don't talk about that. I told it to my mom when I was seven, and my later on, my parents told me that they talked with him, but nobody did something, you know. And it's not. I realize now it's not something that only was then, but it's still now, and and. We need to be more open and, and tell people that it's not okay. And it can be a start of, of really health problems, of, of anxiety problems, whatever. And and some people are born with, I mean, my daughter with a borderline personality disorder. It can come from the same thing. But also, I, I talk to, to girls they also had the borderline personality disorder and there was nothing wrong in their life never 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 had been something wrong so it 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 can overcome everybody and it can start when you are young but it can also when you are older it, it it's 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 nothing it's nothing strange i mean it's 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 something that's part of your your body 
what I say. So, and I'm not ashamed for that. I mean, I'm I'm not always talking about it, but and and people. One of the guys that I talked in Poland, he said, "Yeah, but you are always so happy. Is it then? Um, is it then a, a, a facade?" I said, "No, I'm. That's my character, positive and." If something is wrong, I try to fix it, and and I, I I'm always positive, but I have this shit in my life, and still I I see some light, and and that's me. For me, uh, that's what doing the hobby does. It it lets me feel like me. Mm. If you see what I mean. Yeah. And all the other bad stuff that happens, and all the stuff that piles up on you, and and um. Because I've I've mentioned on it before, I have uh, quite a severe anxiety thing. It lets you like not have that for a while. Yeah. While you're at the bench, it, you yeah. know, you could just be yourself. Yeah. yeah. And that's that. That's good that we have that. That you have your mm. hobby. I have my hobby. And and when I feel sad and lonely, and and I sit in my bench and I start to paint, and I'm I'm look at my stuff that I that I painted and. And and it starts to, like, my lungs getting open, uh, my mind's getting open. Sometimes I p- play my music, sometimes quiet, depends on my mood. And then it's lunchtime and I feel a completely different person. Did somebody say lunchtime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, for me, it's all, almost bedtime. <laughs> Yes, we have, we we have a preoccupation with food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it's always about to be a meal time. Uh, yeah, for one for <laughs> one of us, it. no matter where it is, it's about to be yeah. a meal time. Yeah, it's for all three of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully we're coming out of this pandemic soon, uh, uh, that means shows again, and obviously we've got World Expo coming yeah. up. but that's not so much fun, maybe for you and Robert, because you're going to be so busy. You okay, Captain. You okay? <laughs> Do I make you sad? Yeah, you know, you can feel an emotion without it being sad. I think we'll yeah. feel yeah. feeling emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's, it's it's just dusty here where I live. Gets in my yeah. eyes, you know. Something in your allergy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's allergies. Yeah. 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 I hope you guys uh, I hope to see you guys in in, in July. Uh, yeah, yeah. I hope so. I mean, we go for it. The, the yeah, and I believe in it. I believe in it. And the pandemic mm. will. I think. Well, we, we learn to live with it. I think after two years as well, people are really going to be ready for yeah. it. Yeah. Oh my god. That's what a party! A, that's <laughs> going to be a party. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget with a big barbecue, huh? On Friday yeah. evening, we have a big barbecue. So, yeah. Oh, it, it will be a party. Uh, uh, World Model Expo will never be the same. <laughs> and, no. no, I don't think it will. And after that, let's let's hope we can go back to the normal thing, to normal SMC. But World yeah. Model Expo is something we're really looking forward And to see everybody. And I hope yeah. everybody yeah. from all the world can come. Yeah, I'd say the competition tables are going to be sagging under the weight yeah. of all the work. Groaning. <laughs> yeah. 
creaking oh, out of the way. We, yeah. we, we have some extra space already, so but <laughs> people are working for two years now. No, longer. Yeah. Longer. Longer, yeah. longer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I've my um. See all this. Kind of, <laughs> I've gone from having a storage problem for these to a storage problem for finished models. Now. Oh, <laughs> so okay. I'm looking at throwing some out. Yeah, so. yeah that's the good thing from figures. You don't need so much space for your storage. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. yeah. Yeah, you could take more to competitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. So. And for people who haven't okay. been to SMC, I don't think they understand how big of a part of the show the figures are it's it's no. fully half of the yeah. show it's it's m just a massive figure show well robert said it's not half it, it, it's but it's it's a big part and we started as a as a plastic modeling show that's how we started with some figures and then i start to, to paint and then i start to travel and then the figures are growing in the competition because I invited people to come, so. And figures is a real community, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's two communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fantasy <laughs> and historical, and the old guard, and the yeah. And most of the time, it's completely one. But I, I don't understand uh, the, the discussion every time. Do you think that historical figures will end one day? People who are painting fantasy, they think that there will be an, a, a day that the that historical figures are gone. I think it's it's a stupid discussion because it will always be there, just like yeah. like fantasy. So. I think it definitely will. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Margot, for uh, t giving us all this time today. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. This was fantastic. Thank you for being willing to go into detail uh, about your work, which is fantastic. And just being, you know, just being so real and going, going deep. We love that. Yeah, that's me. Thank you, guys. It was, it was an honor to be there. It is an honor. My grandchildren are looking forward to the podcast. My grandma and the podcast. I hope they're all right with swearing. <laughs> we didn't do that much swearing. Well, we will on the chat. I'll guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 then with Captain Cannabis, hey. Yeah. <laughs> you might have it's, a little explaining it, to do. Yes, yes, but it was an honor and it was fun. It was really fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's a wonderful conversation. And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marco. I don't see how you couldn't have. It was fantastic. Yeah, it really was. It really was. I mean, I, you know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I, I have followed her on Facebook. I know her work is amazing. And it turns out that <laughs> she's like, she's like the lady I want to be my grandma. I mean, she's just so cool. 
and and I, and I just loved that. And she, but what I really loved the most is that she just, man, she brought it hard. She kept it real. And uh, yeah, got a little emo there, um, which I'm not ashamed of at all. I, I, I really like the female perspective. And I think a lot of dudes can learn a lot from an interview like that uh, when it comes to talking about your shit. And uh, so not only is she super cool and super talented, but I just have mad respect for who she is as a person. And I think it's one of our best interviews. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we put up the teaser uh, announcing who our special interview this, this time is going to be. And it's been really nice to see so many people commenting on that and being like, oh, my God, she's a fucking wizard. Like, I can't believe it. I hope you asked her about this and this and this and I hope you asked her about that. And I, I don't think we got to everything that everyone wanted us to talk about with her. She talked about what she wanted to talk about. Um, her work, the way she works, her journey and is is pretty inspirational and pretty incredible uh, for a male or female modeler. Um, that, that seems kind of irrelevant in some places in this interview, but it is nice to get a, a perspective of a female who's very involved in the hobby, but man, she just opened right up, opened right up and laid it on the, on the table. And that's, uh, in some ways that was a little surprising, but just, you know, you have to have an incredible amount of respect for somebody who is so, so open about everything that they've gone through and, and how the hobby is, has affected them personally on a positive note. Um, it's just not, it's, it was very surprising and it's unusual because I feel like so many people sort of tiptoe around it and she didn't. So um, I, I think, you know, by the time anybody's listening to us talk about this, they will have already heard that they, they will have already gathered that. So I think it was a really special interview on a lot of ways and uh, it was really great hanging out and talking with her. And I can't wait to sit down and have a beer with her. I have to say we didn't, we didn't know a lot of what Margot was going to tell us when we started the interview. We wanted to talk about her work and I kind of wanted to talk about her view on women in modeling, but then I kind of felt like it was just a great interview without getting into that. So just let her, let her talk about whatever she wants to talk about. But, um, yeah, she was incredibly honest and open with us, and I really do appreciate her trusting us for doing that. Uh, and the 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 fact that she gets so much out of the travel and the community and the hobby really resonated with me as well. Yeah, that was cool. All right, so uh, next show is going to be in two weeks. By now, you'll know that we took an extra week uh, with this show just to change our schedule so we don't clash with so many of the other podcasts. And the next show is going to be Will's. Will, last thing, why don't you just tell us who's coming up on the next show? Well, I think I closed that deal this morning, and this is going to be a good one. Uh, we have not gotten a lot of aircraft model modelers on, and we're trying to remedy that. And this one, I think, is going to be pretty special. Uh, we've got John Chung uh, coming on. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty cool. If you're not familiar with here, who he is, because you just like live in a cave on a deserted Island or something, (laughs) 
go go find him at JC Chung Studios on Facebook. Check out his work on his uh, space shuttle. He's working on an F-18 Hornet as well. It's going to be good. He takes awesome aviation photos too. So he is a phenomenal, well, like, like well published aviation photographer. Hmm. And he's an engineer. So there. (laughs) So get your shot glasses ready. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get the fuck out of here. Tracy, sign us off. Am I wrapping things? What the fuck was that? No, just say goodbye. Fucking hell. Oh, (laughs) all right. So from me, Chris Meddings, goodbye. All right, from me, Tracy Hancock, let's go get lunch. Adios, bitches. I see Chris dabbing cement on his little tank. And Will's off camera doing a little wank.